All right, it's that time again. And when I say that time again, it's the time when I feel the kind of random urge to launch another one of these very enjoyable and edifying, I would hope, call-in sessions. As you may know, if you've been following me on a number of different platforms, whether it be here or Substack or Twitter or what have you, uh, I am still in Poland. I am in Jeshev, which took me a while to figure out how to pronounce correctly, but I think I've got it down. And it's about 50 or so miles from the Ukraine border. Uh, yesterday, it was at the border itself. So the literal uh, crossing where the Polish border police are stationed and where there are large lines of vehicles uh, snaking in and out to get both into Ukraine and out of Ukraine, the people trying to get into Ukraine might be of some interest. Um, I try to gander at who exactly is attempting to enter the country at this point because they've got to have a particular motive, you would think, whether it's a strictly humanitarian one, uh, whether it's a, let's say, combat-oriented one, whether it could be a more surreptitious one. And, uh, you know, it's hard to really tell with any precision just based on my observations of the cars, but um, there was one vehicle that I, I snapped a photo of that I'll post at some point of... Uh, a small sort of uh, pickup truck style vehicle with spray painted on it uh, in both Polish and English, Stop the War. Uh, so I'm not 100% sure what those people were up to in terms of their intent or apparent intent to stop the war. But um, yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. Yeah, being in this area, it's sort of brimming with a whole variety of Characters, uh, there are a lot of adventure seekers who uh, evidently flock to the proximity of a war zone, um, which I guess isn't surprising. And there's a historic, uh, historical kind of legacy of this if you've read about the Spanish Civil War and such. I don't know that I would analogize these ideological dimensions of what's happening in Ukraine to the Spanish Civil War, but there's a similar sort of thrill-seeking component here where uh, all manner of misfits and uh, tough guys and what have you are coming to Ukraine to do this or that. Um, I had a sub stack on Sunday, or was it Monday? On Monday of this week, where uh, for subscribers, <laughs> maybe I should actually take that out of the paywall now, the portion of this post that I'm about to describe, um, but you know, one thing that I've overheard amongst the uh, NGO types, you know, from the U.S. Uh, who are here, you know, in the border region of Poland, is uh, them talking about the logistics of what's going on in Ukraine. And unsurprisingly, uh, I heard uh, one individual who I don't wish to name just because of the potential sensitivity, but uh, one individual working at a relatively senior level at an NGO that's based in Washington, D.C., uh, was talking about how their uh, security operation in uh, 
the quote-unquote front lines of Ukraine hmm, is being led by a former special ops guy, by which this person meant a guy who formerly was on active duty in the special forces of the U.S. military. Um, now, of course, the government, the U.S. government at this juncture assures us that there are no active duty members of any military branch inside Ukraine. Um, I don't know that the CIA has given that assurance, uh, but the Pentagon has. Um, so, But one is only left to speculate who actually might be inside Ukraine right now of an American vintage. Uh, because there was, as you probably heard, or if you've uh, been following the news of the, over the past week, you would have almost certainly heard that there was this airstrike in Yavoriv in far western Ukraine on Sunday, March 13th. Right? So this was the most westward strike that Russia has committed thus far. Ukraine was only 15 miles from the border. Um, so I didn't personally hear it or anything. It was a little too far, I guess, in Yeshev, but people who were in Poland actually did hear it uh, closer to the border. And where was this strike conducted? Well, it was at what's called the quote-unquote International Center for Peacekeeping and Security. And uh, this is the facility where there had been a hub of U.S. and NATO uh, military activity for years before the invasion. Uh, and this ranged from you know, all-out exercises, like there was a full-on U.S.-NATO uh, exercise in July of 2021 at this facility. I mean, these are exercises that aren't reported on very much at all in U.S. media, but I think it's uh, fair to say that Putin is uh, likely aware of them. And also just kind of more uh, run-of-the-mill training and military operations run out of this facility uh, most recently prior to the invasion by the uh, Florida National Guard who were uh, who had personnel there uh, until they were ostensibly withdrawn in the lead up to the invasion. And when I say ostensibly, it's just because, you know, <laughs> this is all based on what the U.S. government claims is happening. Uh, I have no direct knowledge of any U.S. military uh, active duty presence in Ukraine, uh, but, you know, I think it would be sort of silly to rule anything out given the uh, clandestine nature of many U.S. operations that have been well documented throughout history. Um, so anyway, the, after the strike occurred, uh, the following day there was a, one of these regular press conferences from John Kirby, who's the Pentagon spokesperson, where uh, he was asked about the casualties because the Ukrainian officials, meaning the governor of the Lviv area, uh, said that there had been at least 35 fatalities arising from the strike on March 13th. Uh, but the nationalities of the casualties was not specified, which would be pretty pertinent because the facility is literally called the International Center for uh, Peacekeeping and Security. Um, so, uh, it was unclear who was actually killed in this strike and there an unspecified number of injuries also happened. Uh, now it occurred to me that, you know, given this influx of uh, foreign fighters that have been uh, 
flowing into Ukraine, including Americans uh, who are valorized in the media. I mean, you can look at CNN and look at other outlets who are doing these glowing uh, profiles of American you know, veterans and others who are joining you know, some sort of uh, ad hoc uh, foreign legion inside of Ukraine and you know, they're being uh, touted as heroes. And so it's uh, pretty clear that there's an incentive, at least from the like a PR standpoint for these individuals to come to Ukraine if they're, let's say, adventurous. Um, and you know, kind of layered on top of that, you have the ideological dimensions of the war that have been set out. I mean, essentially, according to the dominant narrative, it's like a existential showdown between good and evil, right? I mean, it's democracy versus authoritarianism on the line or freedom versus tyranny. I mean, these are actual phrases that have been used in sort of the popular U.S. media discussion and also amongst uh, politicians. So, you know, it wouldn't be surprising if uh, some youngish, you know, men mostly would find it to be an opportunity to come and do some freelance uh, war fighting. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, I wanted to see, you know, were there, and also I, you see reports that, you know, haven't, been 100% uh, substantiated, but, you know, stuff was circulating on social media of uh, foreign fighters from even uh, from South America and all over the place uh, talking about or claiming that they had been in, in this um, attack on the, this, this facility in far western Ukraine. Right, so, of course, my interest was piqued, and I wanted to uh, see if what John Kirby insisted, that there were no U.S. Civil, uh, military personnel or quote-unquote civilians of any kind at this facility. I wanted to know if there was any way to independently corroborate that because, of course, we should we, – we don't or at least ought not to take everything that the Pentagon says at face value when it's in the midst of actively facilitating to one degree or another a, a major war in Ukraine. Uh, I don't know if people are aware, but they should be that, uh, at least according to the Wall Street Journal, uh, the current U.S. war effort in Ukraine is uh, consists of, at minimum, the biggest uh, flow of U.S.-provided weapons into Europe since 1947 when Harry Truman authorized uh, – weapons deployments to uh, Greece and uh, Turkey at the kind of onset of the Cold War. So that's sort of a historic development unto itself. And uh, so that, and also kind of gets to why I'm sort of impatient with these kind of celebratory uh, praise kind of rituals of Biden for not being particularly eager to launch World War III, at least per his rhetoric. I, mean, I would think that should be a low bar to clear that the president of the United States is reticent to get us all annihilated in a nuclear conflagration. Um, you know, but Biden, at least per his rhetoric, uh, passes that test. So therefore, uh, people who are <laughs> inclined toward uh, you know restraint uh, have been heaping praise upon him. Uh, I would think that should be the uh, the bare minimum that he would be expected to. Adhere to, um, but you know the policy story is sort of different. You know, I'm I've been going around to uh, different U.S. military uh, installations and uh, talking where I can to actual on-duty uh, soldiers, and um, 
some of the soldiers are willing to talk. I, I uh, recounted this in an article that I did uh, last week about uh, soldiers that I met kind of just ambling around Krakow, which is more toward the west of the country in Poland. Um, and they were pretty open uh, about not appearing to do a whole lot, really. Uh, just uh, their, their, their mission is just one of supposed, quote-unquote, reassurance, meaning that their physical presence in Poland is intended to just give reassurance, whatever that means, to uh, Eastern European countries, namely Poland, where there are a lot of people who uh, rightly or wrongly uh, believe that there is a very stark risk right now of Poland itself actually being invaded because there's a belief that uh, Putin is dead set on reconstituting the Soviet Union um, and uh, therefore there is uh, paranoia. I'm not necessarily condemning that paranoia. I mean, I'm trying to be humble myself in terms of prognostications. It seems somewhat implausible to me that Putin would invade Poland, but you know, I don't don't know. Um, his actions, at least, definitely since the invasion, don't strike me as particularly rational. Uh, so therefore, certain presumptions I might have had, and I know definitely other uh, analysts have had even very seasoned ones in Russia itself uh, as to his kind of calculations, if not uh, have to have have to be reevaluated, and I think that calls for some humility. But nonetheless, you know, this is the supposed mission of many of the troops in Poland. Uh, there are more U.S. troops in Poland now than uh, in at any point in decades, um, and most of them, by the way, are deployed under the auspices of the U.S. It's not a NATO mission, and there are NATO uh, troops in which uh, the U.S. is a kind of participating uh, nation, uh, namely this rapid deployment force, uh, although what that force that NATO activated the day after the invasion is actually up to is still not clear to me. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, many of these troops are just uh, under the ordinary you know, U.S. command. And so, like I said, some of them are just kind of walking around and just making their presence visible, uh, but others in the more eastern, southeastern part of the country, which is where I am now, are uh, actively engaged in these weapons uh, convoys. And uh, so, you know, you can see them, uh, these new installations that have been erected around uh, Yeshif uh, and elsewhere. And uh, typically what appears to happen is that in the dead of night, um, Jets fly in to this uh, airport, and then at some point there is a you know, convoy loaded, and the weapons head into Ukraine. So when this facility, uh, just 15 miles from the border, was bombed by Russia on the March 13th, the assumption was that this was uh, an attempt to disrupt supply lines, right? Because that uh, international Center for Peacekeeping and Security, quote-unquote, would be a natural staging area for munitions and other materials flowing into Ukraine at the behest of the U.S., right? Um, but this hasn't – but Kirby, um, the Pentagon spokesperson, uh, denied that this facility was being used for uh, weapons transfers. Okay, so those are the official, at least, claims of the Pentagon. No U.S. civilians of any kind in – yeah, this uh, facility in Yavariv and uh, not being used for supply lines. Sure enough, what do I encounter yesterday but a American, 
uh, regaled in uh, his combat fatigues. And I, I encountered him at this uh, processing center, large kind of arena type place, just like literally right across the border um, from Ukraine in Poland at this uh, place called Korzawa. I think that's how it's pronounced, but I am always embarrassed by my inability to uh, naturally <laughs> intuit how to pronounce different Polish words and uh, proper nouns and such. Uh, but anyway, uh, I came across this uh, gentleman, and uh, sure enough, he told me that he was a guy from uh, originally New Jersey. So I was able to uh, relate to him on the basis of us both being originally from uh, New Jersey. It's it's weird. I don't know if anybody is from New Jersey who's listening to this. But I really do find that almost anywhere I go in the U.S. or otherwise, like I, I'm almost bound to encounter somebody from New Jersey. I don't know why that is. Maybe it's I'm just – uh, making up that as an illusion in my head, but just bizarrely, anecdotally, that seems to always be the case. Um, so even in the most far-flung places like uh, this uh, processing center for displaced Ukrainians right across the border from Ukraine, uh, who do I uh, meet but a guy from New Jersey, naturally. And like almost near where I grew up in New Jersey. Um, but anyway, uh, so he gave some insight and he would only give uh, his sort of I guess pseudonym or um, I've la- I've since identified him. I'm not going to give the name out publicly quite yet, um, but he gave his sort of nickname as Xander. Um, and he said that, you know, he had come to Ukraine to fight with uh, this newly created force called the Zelensky battalion, which is like an international force of, I don't uh, mercenary would be the unkind way of putting it, but I don't think it would necessarily be <laughs> descriptively wrong. Uh, but you know, maybe foreign fighters is a more charitable way of putting it. But regardless, it's a you know a quote unquote self proclaimed battalion of people from other countries, including uh, you know Canada and uh, Belgium and so on, uh, who are in Ukraine and are engaged in uh, combat. I mean, he wouldn't specify to me what kind of combat he had been engaged in, but he did say that he, an American, was present at this facility in Yavoriv when it was bombed by Russia on March 13th. Okay, so that statement from Kirby, John Kirby, uh, that there were no Americans present at the facility during the bombing is false, according to an American that I just personally encountered. And this is not a guy, you know, who's reaching out to me to troll me or something. I mean, this is a guy who I just happened to cross, right? And, uh, you know, according to him, he was there. He gave a vivid account of what it was like to be there. He said that uh, 5 a.m., all of a sudden, you know, he happened to be up watching a movie at the time. I found that a little odd, but, you know, okay. He said he was watching Saving Private Ryan. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of comical. How It's almost like a caricature of what you would think would be happening, but he claimed he was watching Saving Private Ryan in his uh, room in this barracks uh, and – at 5 a.m., uh, out of nowhere, there were giant explosions and, quote-unquote, his whole fucking window was blown out. And uh, according to this person, he said that uh, if he had just been in a slightly different position you know, on his bed, he would have been killed. Uh, he said that he would have uh, been basically impaled by a uh, huge shard of glass that 
blew uh, out from the window and, uh, you know, would have killed him. That's what he said. Um, but uh, he wasn't killed. Uh, he did uh, get some uh, somewhat significant uh, injuries on his uh, hands and arms just by scrambling through uh, to kind of get his bearings through the broken glass. And um, he then eventually sort of made his way uh, out of Ukraine into uh, Poland where uh, he remains today and uh last i heard he intends to go back to into ukraine <clears throat> so that's i would think uh, original reporting on my part not to toot my own horn or anything but now at least according to this individual we have uh evidence that the pentagon was not entirely forthright in its assurance that there were no americans present at that facility and you know the bombing on uh, march 13th was seen i think probably rightly as an escalation from russia uh because there has not been a whole lot of intense fighting in the western part of ukraine around uh kiev this is actually west of no not kiev sorry lviv and this is actually west of lviv and um you know this if, if russia is willing to strike targets that close this close to the polish border uh there's it definitely raises the prospect of some sort of escalation uh, where uh, NATO, Poland as a NATO member is um, drawn into the fight in some more direct sense than it already is. I mean, I think there's reason to believe that uh, Poland is very much actively involved now in these direct facilitations of weapons transfers into Ukraine. Uh, so they're involved in lo the logistics. I mean, I think they're pretty open with that, but they're not giving precise details about how these convoys are actually bringing the weapons in, um, nor is the U.S. So the, there's, while the broad outlines of the mission are announced by the government authorities of the respective two countries, the logistics are uh, concealed. And those logistics would be worthwhile to know in my estimation because it would give more insight into the uh, nature of the engagement right now in a hot, in a hot war zone by NATO countries. Um, so it's not like these weapons transfers that are being touted so uh, celebratorily uh, just kind of magically appear in Ukraine. They got to get them in there, right? So how are they actually doing that? Well, that's still an open question um, because the government officials are not really describing the logistics of how that has worked. Um, so, you know, when uh, Biden yesterday, as he did, announced that uh, he is sending another hundred couple, uh, another couple hundred million dollars of weapons into Ukraine, you know, that is a pretty big logistical task. Um, and there's I, I haven't seen a whole lot of uh, reporting on how that is actually being facilitated, which I think would be worth knowing. So I'm kind of working on gaining greater insight into that myself. Um uh, and this uh, person, you know, he couldn't uh, confirm it from firsthand knowledge, but he did say that it, he was of the mind, based on what he was told and what he saw at this facility, uh, that it was a uh, staging area for various uh, U.S. provided munitions. So he interpreted the strike as a like a direct, as direct as Rush could get of an attack on the U.S. itself, right? Um, and you know, we have a. Uh, uh, an injury of a U.S. at least one U.S. person uh, from this attack. So that's 
kind of an escalation that I don't think has really gotten enough attention. Um, and, uh, you know, it's kind of, I, I think, it, nor has it gotten en- enough attention, really, that there's probably going to be mounting U.S. casualties in this war, notwithstanding uh, the fact that uh, supposedly the U.S. is not an active combatant, right? I mean, that's what we're being told by Biden when he's saying, you know, we're not going to get involved in World War III. Okay, well, maybe so, but <laughs> there's a lot of Americans in Ukraine in, in, in combat, and even if they're not under direct command for the military, I mean, and there's kind of all, all kinds of back uh, channel ways that certain military options could be facilitated. Like I mentioned, the special ops guy working for an NGO. Um, <clears throat> you know, special ops is like, uh, you know, they have these networks of uh, people they deal with to help run an operation as complex as, you know, doing security in a war zone quote-unquote security um and then just today uh, i don't know if there's been any update yet but about as of about an hour or two ago there was uh, the state department confirming that a an unnamed u.s citizen was killed in another part of uh, ukraine um and the circumstances of that fatality have not been specified who was it what were they doing don't know um would it be surprising if they were a foreign fighter no uh, clearly there are a bunch of them in ukraine fighting um whether it's in a kind of clandestine clandestine capacity uh, or you know where there's somebody actually doing doing this on direct orders from a government body like the cia or something to that effect or if it's just one of these uh, kind of freelance uh, private or quasi-private uh wartime adventurers uh, don't know uh, just a lot of ambiguity as usual around the situation um so uh just wanted to fill you in on that and uh make another observation a couple of observations then i'll obviously open this up to uh people who are in the chat um i i continue to be stunned by the coverage of Zelensky. i guess i shouldn't be stunned any any longer um but yesterday i was in one of these border towns um and while there, I was uh, sitting in a tra- kind of traditional Polish restaurant having some soup for, for lunch. And I listened to the address that uh, Zelensky delivered to the U.S. Congress yesterday. And at one point, I don't know if he saw it, um, but he plays this uh, video montage because this is all done over Zoom, which is kind of I think maximizes his reach, it seems. So it's maybe even better from a PR standpoint that he's doing this all over Zoom from his, uh, you know, bunker or what have you in, in Kiev. Um, but he played this um, video montage of kind of emotionally searing footage from Ukraine, right, uh, where, you know, it was children crying and, you know, old people being ushered around and bombs dropping and, um, graphic footage, really. Um, if, when I was watching the C-SPAN version of that, they had to put up like a disclaimer saying, you know, warning people that it's graphic footage. Uh, but this is what was played for a Congress. And, you know, at the end of the montage, um, a black screen appears and on it is the, te- the text in English uh, saying, close the sky over Ukraine. So, I mean, that is... An explicit call by Zelensky in his presentation that was pre-prepared 
um, for uh, the U.S. to uh, not just militarily intervene. I mean, they're already militarily intervening to some extent, but to outright launch war on Russia in Ukraine. That's what the no. That's what the close the sky means, right? I mean, I think we've established that at this point. It's another f- term for a no-fly zone. Um, uh, Zelensky has used the term no-fly zone when talking to American audiences, but my v- strong impression is that when the concept is discussed in amongst Ukrainians, they call it close the sky. And uh, you could see why. I mean, it's like a euphemism on top of a euphemism, right? It sounds humanitarian in nature. It doesn't give much of a sense that there is really any military component at all. And you know, sure enough, when I've been to these uh, centers for uh, displaced uh, Ukrainians, and uh, talking to people, um, invariably, is uh, actually it's sort of interesting because the only I've only talked to women um, at these places. Um, the displaced Ukrainians coming into Poland right now are, I would say, ninety to ninety-five percent women. Amongst the adults, you have some older men, like elderly men, um, but it's almost all women. Um, many with young children. I haven't even really seen that many male uh, kids older than like maybe nine or ten. It seems like um, even young teens, uh, at least from what I, I'm observing, and this is a limited observation, I, I admit, uh, it, it's it's all female except for you know very young boys and uh, some elderly men. Um, so the only I won't really talk to uh, to women and. Um, you know, yesterday I talked to a few at this uh, kind of more randomly within these uh, towns where they're they're congregating and waiting for you know guidance somewhere to go, and um, you know first I I have them just describe their situation to me what it was like to uh, escape and you know it's they they give very harrowing accounts I mean anybody who's a human ought to uh, sympathize with them and I did uh, of course. Um, uh, where, you know, they, this one, uh, woman who was, uh, one woman I was talking to yesterday, she's probably in her you know, late twenties was, uh, saying that she was from uh, Kharkiv and, um, you know, she, uh, stayed for, for quite a while into the war, uh, thinking that, you know, this was her home and she's not going to leave. And then, you know, when there are bombs going off just a few kilometers from her, uh, home, um, she eventually decided she had to leave and so she takes a pretty uh, arduous journey three days to make it uh, into Ukraine you know, a lot of uh, a bunch of people uh, sorry three days to make it from Ukraine into Poland uh, a few of the women that I spoke to you know had to ha- go th- all the way through Moldova uh, and then into uh, Hungary and Slovakia and then eventually to Poland and they come to they a lot of them have their have Poland as their final destination because According to what I've been told by them, there's this um, belief, probably rightly so, that in Poland you have a much better chance of, uh, for example, getting an American visa. Um, uh, I wrote a substack uh, last week, on uh, Friday of last week, uh, where I, I quoted this woman who uh, took that journey through like you know, those four different countries uh, specifically to get to Poland because you know, the word on the street – um, was that in Poland, the U.S. consulate is more likely to process your uh, visa application quickly. And, you know, sure enough, she had gotten it pretty quickly, as had her uh, sister and mother. 
Um, so it seems uh, rational to get to, to Poland, which you know probably has uh, more more of a stronger uh, more of a strong tie with the, the U.S. I would say uh, than some of these other uh, Central and Eastern European countries where they could potentially go. So if they're if they're interested in getting help from the U.S., you know, Poland is the is the natural destination. Um, uh, but anyway, so you know when I, uh, I I get their stories and you know they're very difficult and and, uh, and sad and you know, they have to leave behind the men uh, who are their relatives and friends um, who are you know conscripted right now. There's martial law in Ukraine, so men are not permitted to leave. They're in it. one moment when she saw Ukrainian troops intercepting men who had attempted to leave. Um, by the way, I don't know if the ethics of that have necessarily <laughs> been debated much in the Western uh, media coverage, but that's a separate issue. Um, the point of this kind of account of my discussions with these women is to say that, you know, when I uh, eventually get to the point of asking them what they think about, what they think should be done militarily, right? Um, what do they think about close the sky? Um, with the exception of one, uh, one woman thought that you know it was ridiculous to even talk about closing the sky because it was such an unrealistic possibility and it was a distraction. But you know, the others that I talked to, so now um, maybe seven or eight, uh, have all kind of uniformly said that uh, of course the sky should be closed. And it's very apparent to me that when they say close the sky, they don't. They sincerely don't know that to quote-unquote close the sky would require U.S. military intervention. And I don't even say NATO military intervention because while it could technically be done under the auspices of NATO, I mean, the U.S. is the driving force behind NATO, as everyone should be aware. The NATO military operations are literally commanded by a, uh, a U.S. senior uh, general or uh, admiral or something to that effect. Um, so it's it would be a U.S. operation, right? So when, like when Estonia's parliament, which it did uh, two days ago or so, uh, passes a resolution demanding a no-fly zone, they're demanding that the U.S. impose a no-fly zone. I mean, there's nobody else going to do, be doing it. It's not Botswana doing it. It's not uh, Bangladesh doing it. It's the U.S. doing it. Um, but you know, these women uh, don't aren't aware because I don't think it's been really explained to them or it just hasn't been emphasized at all that to close the sky is would necessitate a U.S. military operation that would obviously um, prompt war with Russia and thereby, you know, World War III. I mean, Marco Rubio, the one of the quintessential hawks in the entire Congress on foreign policy, has been, uh, even he has been warning that uh, this eventuality would be the initiation of World War III. Um, and uh, they're not aware of it. Now, would I expect them to be? I guess not necessarily. I mean, they've been, gone through a hugely tumultuous uh, period. They're probably not really thinking much about the nuances of different military operations that could be in the offing. But I think it's a reflection of like, how this is being presented by, uh, by Ukraine officials, government officials, uh, kind of cultural figures, and others who are in a position to know what it entails, right? I mean, you've had not just Zelensky, but his uh, top advisors and whatnot. You know, even just writing it, even writing in the New York Times, uh, maybe you know, a week and a half or so ago now, that they're calling on the U.S. to impose a no-fly zone militarily. Uh, so they know what it means. 
Um, but the ordinary citizens don't, which I think kind of l- lends itself to an ethical quandary. Because uh, on the one hand, yes, of course, anybody who's uh, <laughs> a normally kind of morally calibrated human ought to uh, uh, have sympathy with these people. But they, I think you also at the same time must recognize that what they're advocating for is – um, U.S. military intervention of, of unthinkably dire consequences. Um, so, kind of managing that and uh, balancing that, I think, is a is a very very tricky to do. And that's what I've been trying to do. I mean, I, when I talk to these people, I'm not challenging them or trying to rebut them or, or debate them. I want to know what they think. Um, but then, once I hear what they think, and uh, I have th- time to think about it myself, I uh, recognize that what they're calling for is basically the precursor to. World War III, and that's just a totally unacceptable prospect. And, uh, you know, I know the, the Biden administration and Biden himself have been uh, saying that they're not interested in World War III, but, you know, neither was Franklin Roosevelt for a long time, right? I mean, uh, Franklin Roosevelt resisted pleas from uh, Churchill for, uh, I don't know the exact length of time, but for quite, uh, quite a while before Pearl Harbor to enter into the European theater on uh, in defense of England, um, there was a huge lobby. Uh, you know, <laughs> Hitler invaded Poland in 1939, and then uh, the U.S. didn't enter the war until 1941 after Pearl Harbor. I'm sorry for giving you an elementary history lesson, but you know, sometimes these lobbying campaigns uh, take a while to actually uh, materialize. At least if we're going on the basis of the president of World War II, um, and you know, there's been a huge amount of progress made in this lobbying campaign, notwithstanding these official assurances that we're not going to get involved in World War III. I mean, you have some of the most prominent uh, media figures in the U.S. as it relates to Russia uh, issues, uh, Gary Kasparov, uh, Bill Browder, um, others, Kurt Volker, who was the former ambassador uh, to special ambassador to uh, Ukraine under Trump and then became an impeachment hero uh, venerated by Democrats in 2019. Um, so many these people are actively calling for uh, a no-fly zone, and even and even that it's like not even the, the necessary escalation that would precipitate a world war. That's just like the worst possible outcome. That would be direct confrontation. But right, we have, we have these weapons shipments. We have uh, ambiguity around the sharing of intelligence uh, by U.S. officials to Ukraine, the Ukraine military as they're conducting combat operations. We have this whole snafu over the uh, whether or not. Jets are going to be deployed. Biden, for the first time, announced that he's sending drones into Ukraine yesterday. And um, and so why, what am I stunned about uh, as relates to Zelensky? Well, he's calling for the initiation of World War III just based on what the – on the most simple, plain English reading of his policy demand. And if you just describe what he's doing – you're, or at least I have been, subject to a giant tsunami of scorn and uh, attack. And, you know, I can take it. It's fine. But it just seems like this is a hugely uh, consequential kind of policy, uh, propaganda offensive that I think is successfully conditioning a lot of the public in the U.S. to be uh, receptive toward uh, further escalations. Um, and uh, yet, you know, we're all kind of mandated, it seems, to uh, venerate uh, Zelensky, uh, n- notwithstanding the insane implications of what it is uh, he's calling for. And I think that's a kind of a recipe for uh, disaster. 
So uh, anyway, uh, those are some thoughts. Uh, sorry uh, for going on a bit longer than usual, but like it's a lot of uh, lots of process. Uh, and so we're going to go to callers. So feel free to join the queue if you haven't yet. And going to go first to uh, Kasha. Good afternoon, Michael. Uh, it's pronounced Kusha. Kusha. Oh, sorry, Kusha. Thank you so much for having me back on. And I yeah, sure. I really appreciate when you opened up your uh, monologue, you referenced the Spanish Civil War. And I really enjoy how you mentioned that the situation in Ukraine right now has some parallels in the sense that there are many people internationally being drawn in and all sorts of different characters. There's an appeal for different types of personalities and different types of ambitions and aspirations. And that being the case, one thing I'd really like to know your thoughts on is the fact that the Spanish Civil War was, I think, one of the most pivotal events that led to World War II. And World War II was a very um, prominent display of the fact that multipolarity, just for the sake of multipolarity, is not necessarily beneficial for the world at all. And it was essentially the moment during which Mussolini's fascist Italy and Hitler's Nazi Germany worked together to be able to rise in Europe as the power-having faction, the dominant one that would be able to challenge um, the others. And so what was interesting for me is what um, Franklin Delano Roosevelt's ambassador uh, to Spain, Claude Bowers, said. He said it was, quote, dress rehearsal, end quote, for World War II. And I'm really curious because hmm. uh, this, it feels like this feels like it could be a dress rehearsal too unless – there's a serious and legitimate effort for a ceasefire, which I believe needs to entail, as I mentioned to you, the U.S., NATO, and the West making, um, taking serious action, saying, look, we're going to stop um, any efforts of ever even talking about Ukraine being in NATO. We're going to reduce NATO membership, reduce NATO funding, reduce our nuclear weapons, so on and so forth. So there's that on one front I would like to raise. And second, about the Spanish Civil War is the fact that the Lincoln Brigade, which is similar to what you were describing with all the different characters who come in for the fighting in uh, Ukraine. The Lincoln Brigade is one in which there was an element of the U.S. government that didn't like the Lincoln Brigade. And mm. so it's very interesting in how that split goes in terms of um, at the time and later. Because you had people like Senator John McCain, who was a war criminal in Vietnam, of course, and he was a prisoner of war, but he was also a war criminal. And so... John McCain, uh, John McCain wrote a letter, uh, sorry, an opinion piece in the it was the New York Times in 2016, said salute to a communist about the Lincoln Brigade. And then on the other mm. hand, at the time, you had people like J. Edgar Hoover, one of the uh, you know biggest uh, oppressors and repressive figures in the United States as FBI director. He said to Roosevelt that we need to stop any efforts to allow those who serve in the Lincoln Brigade to get promotions and to grow forward uh, in their careers. And so even 1947, after Roosevelt died, the Lincoln Brigade was put on the list of subversive organizations for the Attorney General. And mm. it was no small group. I mean, 3,000 people is, is pretty significant, I suppose. Granted, in wars, you have probably many more, depending on how large the war is. So I'd really like to know your thoughts on both... Um, the parallels between the Spanish Civil War and, and uh, Russian Putin's invasion of Ukraine and about this whole dress rehearsal matter. And secondly, about um, the uh, Lincoln Brigade and uh, the analysis from 
even people like John McCain and Jed Hoover and so on and so forth. Thank you so much, Michael. Yeah, thank you. That's a, that's really interesting. Um, you know, I have to conclude that there's at least tacit approval on the part of U.S. government officials for this influx of foreign fighters. Um, or at least there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of strenuous effort to prevent the entry of these uh, Americans and others into Ukraine. I mean, as far as I gather from this individual I met, uh, it's not as though he's being uh, blocked or uh, impeded much. And uh, he managed to make his way to this base um, with this, you know, in concert with this battalion that had been, pre- you know, just a few weeks ago had been uh, the site of uh, training activities by the Florida National Guard. Um, uh, I would think that, you know, if Biden genuinely does want to avoid uh, World War III, then he might want to uh, uh, take more concrete steps to uh, limit the uh, potential of American casualties inside Ukraine. And again, these aren't casualties that, as far as we know, are the product of any uh, overt uh, U.S. military deployment. But I, I think, you know, if casualties mount, you know, if Americans are killed more and more inside Ukraine, we already had, you know, this uh, journalist who, you know, was claimed by the Ukrainian officials to be working for the New York Times, but wasn't, you know, was in some kind of freelance capacity, apparently, um, was killed a, a few days ago. And then these, uh, this Fox News uh, camera person and... Um, uh, this uh, unknown fatality today, about which no details, as far as I have seen, have been disclosed. Uh, I, I think you know those could uh, build up to um, uh, exert additional, even more pressure on uh, policymakers to endorse some sort of more overt uh, intervention. And uh, is that a is that by design? Uh, I, I don't know. I think it's uh, sort of muddled, right? I mean, my assumption would be that Biden probably doesn't prefer this. Um, but uh, until further notice, uh, I mean, then maybe there's something comparable to the J. Edgar Hoover initiative that you reference about the, uh, the Lincoln Brigade. Um, but until further notice, I don't see much of an official effort, and correct me if I'm wrong, to uh, thwart the ambitions of these uh, people uh, going into Ukraine. I mean, if, and if anything, if you look at the media coverage, they're being uh, glamorized. Um, so yeah, I think uh, there is potentially some real uh, parallel there between uh, Spanish. Civil- I, mean, I, I should actually maybe, if you uh, if you would, Kusha, uh, send me some of the material you're referencing in terms of that quote about it uh, being a precursor. So I'll do some research. Yeah. Um, what would you send material to? Uh, you, you reference a, a quote, um, basically saying that it was a that the Spanish Civil War uh, was the. You know, precursor to World oh, War II. Quote about the dress rehearsal. Yes, the I dress remember. rehearsal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the person who said that. The yes. Said that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Send, send me that if you if you if you don't mind. Um, in the Twitter or email or whatever. Um, so so you, but yeah, I, I mean, I think it is. Uh, it, it could be a dress rehearsal in a similar way because it's like solidifying the ideological dimensions behind what the how the wider conflict could be justified. Right. It's. Uh, you know, the U.S. Uh, fighting on behalf of freedom, which is kind of just a standard cliche, but it, 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 it is kind of in keeping with this uh, sort of emergent geopolitical theory that burgeoned 
since 2016, at least we're talking mainly about Democrats. I mean, the Republicans are a separate issue. They have their own ideological uh, motives that fuse nicely with the Democrats. And I mean nicely in sort of an ironic way. It's actually very perilous how neatly this uh, synergy has lined up. Um, but at least in terms of Democrats, which I think is most relevant now because we have a Democratic administration, right? Um, it, Putin represents this... Uh, global leader of illiberalism and authoritarianism um, and uh, liberal democracy must stand up to take on uh, their chief foe and um, you know particularly if this uh, alliance with uh, China uh, materializes more uh, militarily in terms of active conflict I mean I think we have the um, groundwork laid for a war that uh, everybody across the political spectrum, more or less, in the U.S. Uh, will have some kind of ideological uh, incentive to uh, invest in. Um, you know, the, with uh, it, it's interesting because I mean, when I say interesting, and I mean in a very ominous way that you had these anonymous reports a few days ago coming out with uh, officials, you know, unnamed officials, of course. Uh, alleging that uh, China was being uh, propositioned to supply uh, military material to Russia for the the war effort. And I think that was denied. uh, But, you know, that's the most official uh, accusation we've got yet, that China is not just kind of acquiescing to Russia's war, but potentially facilitating it. Um, So I I think, you know, in terms of the... a test run for being uh, for World War II being run in Ukraine. Yeah, I think uh, that's probably apt uh, on uh, multiple levels, uh, not just uh, in terms of the actual uh, military scenario, but in terms of the uh, the ideological uh, kind of context that's being established. Uh, if that makes sense. Um, and also on the, on the on the question of world uh, World War Three, I also just want to note something that I've heard over and over again from these from from both Poles uh, and uh, some of the Ukrainian uh, displaced people. I, and I, I maybe this is uh, cheap or trivial on my part, but I don't like to use the word uh, refugee, not because I'm diminishing the hardship of that these people have experienced at all, but I think it kind of I don't know it uh, overly broadly kind of categorizes them as something. So like their entire essence is distilled into being a refugee. And a lot of these people, the, the women anyway, I've spoken to are very, you know, obviously they're um, unsettled, uh, but they have like an air of confidence about them. There's a lot of support that's given to these uh, displaced people uh, where, you know, the, you know, for example, the Polish government has a lot of the, these, these processing centers set up at least on the or they had this giant processing center set up on the border um, and uh, tons of aid organizations I mean there's been a huge amount of money poured into providing uh, in a humanitarian sense for these uh, people and I'm, I'm even at the point now where I think you know it's questionable whether more fun, funds are necessarily warranted I mean maybe they are I mean maybe I should even say that but I think there's always a danger. Uh, when you have such a giant outpouring of uh, financial financial uh, support in such a short period of time, that those funds can be misused or uh, used for purposes that might not be totally above board, um, you know, <laughs> kind of a weird analogy, maybe maybe given the circumstances. But you know, when the George Floyd thing happened in 2020, some of these nonprofits uh, that were newly sprouted, right, just got huge windfalls 
like overnight from uh, foundations, from corporations. And uh, then, you know, naturally, you know, once the uh, audits are, uh, are done, um, we find out that a lot of the funds are misspent or used for ridiculous purposes. Um, so I need to think that there could be a comparable uh, dynamic here. But, you know, I, that, that, I guess that's why I, I sort of hesitate just kind of telling someone that they're a refugee if they don't really use that word themselves and they have like a sense of uh, self-confidence about them. But anyway, that's uh, sort of a digression. Um, but uh, thanks, Kush. I don't know if you have any more thoughts on that. Absolutely. I think the last things I would like to talk about is the fact that when I think about the Spanish Civil War, I have some conflicting feelings because I don't like military interventionism. I don't like jingoism. I hate war. But it seems to me when I reflect on that, that had Roosevelt acquiesced to the demands of so much of the international left and fought uh, against Francisco Franco and the Nazis and the Italian fascists in Spain, then the devastation that the world has seen in World War II of, I don't know, 70 million to 85 million deaths, half, over half of them Chinese and Soviet, you know, have occurred. And then I don't like that it, the, if someone's to make a comparison to say, and that's why the nuke of Hiroshima Nagasaki had to be done. That's false. That's probably false. The work that Peter Kuzmin showed, there was no military need for it. It was egregious. And so many generals like even Eisenhower and so on and admirals and others said there was no need for it. But returning to the point of the Spanish Civil War, though, is that that's really when the Nazis solidified power. And I think that I'm not saying by any means that Biden should be intervening, the NATO should be intervening in Ukraine, because I think one important thing is that the Spanish Civil War had a, a strong left-wing component. Like even George Orwell went out there and fought. And granted, yeah. George Orwell was uh, you know, a British imperial officer in Burma, but that was like a turning point for him in which he started becoming very, very turned away from, uh, you know, disgusted by the colonialism that was taking place by the British Empire. And right. during the Spanish War, they started hating Stalinism. And that's why he wrote his book condemning Stalin so clearly, Animal Farm, in 1945, when Stalin was the most one of the most popular people in the world for defeating the Nazis. And, and then, so I think that the Spanish Civil War showed that I don't know about how I felt about the intervention, like if Roosevelt acted, because he really was hesitant. He's doing, he did what Biden is doing now. But yeah. I know the difference is that now you have actual Nazis in Ukraine, like the Azov Battalion, that Zelensky has to capitulate to them very much because they have a lot of influence, that Ukraine's government, even before Zelensky, during um, where Viktor Yanukovych was extremely corrupt. If I'm not mistaken, he had been condemned. In Ukrainian parliament, they were like 320 to zero or something like that out of 450 members of parliament to condemn him and say that he needs to be ousted, essentially. If I'm not mistaken, mm -hmm. it was that. Yeah, something so, like that. The circumstances are different. And in my view, you know, one has to always look at the observable, empirical, documented, on-the-ground material circumstances when they make any such value judgment about this. And I'd really like to know if you feel the same tension when it comes to analyzing the Spanish Civil War and interventionism. And now, because obviously intervention now by the U.S. and NATO means nuclear destruction, thermonuclear destruction, and that cannot happen by any means. Well, yeah, I mean, one thing I was going to say before I lost my train of thought when I was talking just before was that uh, on the topic of whether World War III is either imminent or happening right now, the one thing you hear from that I've heard over and over again from these uh, displaced Ukrainian uh, women and, and also Poles is their utter conviction um, that Putin will not stop at Ukraine. 
right? Um, and therefore, you know, uh, they're of the mind that, you know, the, the excuse for the U.S. not to close the sky right now doesn't hold up because it's only a matter of time before they have to, uh, have to intervene militarily. Um, and so might as well do so now and uh, get out ahead of it than uh, wait and uh, allow Putin or, you know, potentially, you know, unforeseen allies to uh, con- consolidate uh, their position. Um, so uh, <laughs> I-, I wonder if, you know, I have to study the issue more and you're giving me a, a point of historical research to do, but I-, I sort of wonder if there was a similar logic invoked um, around the Spanish Civil War that kind of gave an air of, of similar inevitability to, uh, to World War III. Um, and again, I don't try to, I don't rebut these people uh, when they express this to me. I mean, people who follow me online may have the misconception that I just go around like angrily chastising people that I talk to or interview, uh, which, you know, I don't do. Um, uh, but, you know, you, you do see this uh, kind of logic uh, that they express uh, having a life of its own. And um, so uh, you know, that, now that you kind of give this uh, historical uh, overview, I kind of wonder if there are any parallels in that sense. But anyway, uh, thank you, uh, Kusha. Going uh, to move on to the next caller, but I uh, always appreciate your welcome. contributions. I sent the link. Yep. link in the chat for you. Okay. Oh, sorry. Didn't mean to cut you off. Um, all right, uh, Johnny, go ahead. Hey, Michael, you there? Yeah, I'm here. Thanks. Hey, um, thank you for the uh, great reporting you've been doing. Uh, there's so few people, American reporters on the ground in Ukraine, given that on the ground perspective, and it's it's very interesting to hear. I'm not actually in Ukraine, just for the record. I'm in, <laughs> in, I'm in Poland. I'm sorry. Uh, no, no, but, yeah. well, yeah, yeah. To be clear on that, you, you did cross the border over into Ukraine briefly, though, right? Um, no, I was at, I was still in Polish territory. So it's on the, on the literal border, but I wasn't in physical, physically in Ukraine. Gotcha. Sorry. I was just trying to gather that from the, uh, from the story you had about the, that character Xander there. Um, and, and no, he had actually come back to uh, Poland, um, after the attack. So that's where I met him. Oh, I see. So was he kind of checking out of the whole deal? He had seen enough and didn't want any part of it uh, anymore? Or? No, I mean, as, uh, last I heard, he's uh, regrouping and uh, will be headed back into Ukraine soon. Oh, okay. I mean, there have been uh, online postings of people having second thoughts and, um, you know. Yeah, I've seen those. Not yeah. quite. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you know. This guy doesn't have, have any second thoughts. If anything, he's more, uh, he's more determined. He's more fired up than ever, huh? Yep. <laughs> Takes more than broken glass to put him off, I guess, huh? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I saw a report this morning that I was curious if you had any input on. Um, Naked Capitalism had a post by John Helmer, who's, a, I think, a longtime reporter, that suggested that maybe Zelensky and the other kind of Central Eastern European leaders had actually met in Poland. Had you seen that, heard about it? Um, I don't know if you have any... Like a, like, a like some sort of secret meeting or a yeah, like he's meeting? not in Kiev. He had snuck over, and instead of the, uh, I think it was the Czechs, the Slovaks, and the Hungarians or the Poles, or how many foreign leaders did he allegedly meet with to conduct his like Zoom call? Uh, well, earlier this week there was a visit to Kiev purportedly, 
from representatives. Uh, so the Polish, I believe, prime minister, uh, Slovenian prime minister, and maybe the, the Slovakian press minister. Yeah, maybe the Czech prime minister. I, I know it was the Slovenian and Polish, uh, one more. They claim to have gone to physically Ki- uh, Kiev to meet with um, – Zelensky. So yeah. that meeting didn't I've take place in Poland, that. at least according to the reports. Yeah, yeah I've seen that. And, and actually, at some... that, and after after that meeting, um, the prime minister uh, or this uh, Polish government representative, who is basically the leader of the ruling conservative party, um, mm-hmm. he then he then put out this idea of some sort of NATO quote unquote peace mission in Ukraine, uh, which you know, <laughs> of course he clarified would entail them taking up arms um, and doing just a military operation. So, um, yeah. so that he, he came up with that, that idea, you know, uh, up, upon having this meeting in, in Kiev with Zelensky, at least that's what the report was. Yeah. I mean, with the, all these euphemisms for things, it's almost like the internet meme of like, tell me you want world war three without telling me you want world war three. Well, that's, that's <laughs> the thing, right? Because like, and the reason why I'm kind of, uh, I, I tend to be a little blunt in just uh, explicitly saying, yeah, that, that this thing that's being calling for is really World War III is because there's, we're just yeah. being inundated with euphemism right now. Uh, because av- outright advocating World War III is like not the most pleasant thing. I mean, so most people who yeah. are probably going to avoid it if they can, but they're, they're effectively doing just that. So it should be pointed out by journalists you would think but most journalists are also seemingly in favor of it so they're sort of hopeless yeah i mean the uh i don't know if you saw the ryan grim footage of the yeah i did yeah just the tone i mean my god it's like they're just trying to figure out a way that we can insert ourselves even more than we've already done which is not to downplay the amount that's already been done and it it really the way it's being treated really seems to be playing out the way the syrian war around 2016 except just like amped up to the next level i mean there were a lot of calls for the no-fly zone uh for a no-fly zone in syria it was short-circuited by trump (laughs) yeah exactly well she was kind of the main string puller behind that right um it wasn't nearly as orchestrated it wasn't nearly as well amplified they didn't have all of the you know right people who were in favor of it on message um you know, you didn't have a head of state who was doing like a Zoom tour, um, yeah. you know, trying to get this. Um, now you've got, you know, Zelensky very much on message. I mean, this guy is a trained actor and he seems to be performing a role. Um, but, yeah, I was I was curious if you didn't. So you didn't see any reports that he was actually in Poland. Right. I mean, there were people who looked at the photo ops and said this train station doesn't look like yet. Huh. Um. I haven't heard that. I'll, I'll take a look at that naked capitalism piece. I just pulled up this report that, you know, we're, what we're told what the real story was is that, yeah, it's the Polish, Czech, and Slovenian prime ministers uh, went to uh, Kiev on Tuesday yeah. and to call for a, a quote-unquote NATO peace mission. Um, that's, what the, that's what the vice premier of uh, the Polish kind of ruling party said. Yeah, I mean, uh, I don't mean to make too big of a deal out of it. I mean, I guess... You know, you could ask on some level, does it matter? But it's, and it's, you know, when you're looking at photographs on the web, I mean, God knows there's a zillion ways to doctor things and stuff like that. But it would sort of almost ironically undercut the image of this Churchillian 
guy who's yeah, yeah. you know in it to the to the to the end. With these, who'd you say the you know? who'd you say the author of that uh, article was? Again? John Helmer. I think he's a correspondent that used to run a, a Moscow news bureau years ago. I don't know for what outfit. Okay. Um, you spotted the yeah, article yeah, on naked uh, capitalism, though. Yeah, I just pulled it up. I'll uh, I'll read it uh, after this. Uh, I got you. I mean, call. he's you know he's got a lot of photographs and stuff like that. It's hard to know how much uh, how mm. seriously they're taken, um, or you know what I mean. But it's just like this guy's become the new Anthony Fauci in a hurry, and it's like if turns out he's you know full of it as you know. Yeah, Hel- Helmer is claiming that the uh, that Zelensky and these three prime ministers actually met in. Uh, Zimysl, Poland. Uh, I'm, I'm, I know I'm butchering that pronunciation, but this is a town that's literally right <laughs> You're doing better the, than I would, Michael. You're yeah, doing that's better a, than I would. <laughs> this is a town that's very, uh, city that's very close to the uh, the border. I was actually just there yesterday um, talking to uh, some of these uh, displaced uh, Ukrainians that were sort of congregating. So if he was, uh, if that's where it took place, you know, that would be interesting. Um, but I'll, yeah, I'll take a look at that. Uh, that article. Uh, uh, thank you, Johnny. Going to move on now to. Yeah, appreciate it, Mike. And uh, <laughs> we we find New Jersey alumni everywhere, man. <laughs> yeah, there's plenty true. of them in uh, in Boston, where I'm from. <laughs> yeah, I know they're they're like uh, uh, like maggots or something. They inf- they infest everything. <laughs> oh, right, be nice thanks. to New Jersey, will you? Come on. <laughs> no, I I actually am. Thanks a lot for taking my call, Michael. Yeah, I actually do have a fondness of New Jersey, despite its. I think unearned reputation is, I don't know what they call it, the armpit of America, which people only say if they've only seen New Jersey between Newark Airport and Manhattan, which is kind of not the full picture. Anyway, thanks, Johnny. Uh, Going to go to the next caller here. Uh, arm, armchair, if that is your real name. You're up. Hi, Michael. Uh, hey. Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah. Great. Yeah. No, it's not my real name. Um, I didn't think so. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, a couple of points, uh, brother, like two questions, basically. Uh, one is, so I I understand and I agree to a certain, I mean, I, I'd say to a large extent with your and other people's analysis on just the, the recklessness and I'd say uh, danger of having a no-fly zone in Ukraine. On the other hand, I also see some people on Twitter, I mean, uh, presumably they, they're not military experts, uh, saying that, you know, you have to be careful with just assuming that Russia is going to engage in a full-scale war with United States and sort of they're making the assumption that Russia is and Putin is not so crazy to actually start a war over Ukraine with the U.S. and so it, he's going to back, back up. So the question for for you is, have you seen any any uh, analysis or any reports from military, uh, you know, uh, experts or military intelligence, uh, especially those who are not, you know, um, not biased towards the United States or part of the United States military apparatus, mm-hmm. on, you know, on this particular on this uh, potential scenario of like, uh, you know, if U.S. or NATO decides to put up a no-fly zone, could it? You know, what's what's the probability real, realistically that Russia is going to, um, you know, uh, continue, you know, and escalate? Um, so, so that's one question. The other question is more related to sanctions that that is um, mm-hmm. that's that Russia is uh, being um, uh, being uh, becoming a victim of. Um, you know, I think. There are certainly some sanctions that are in order for, you know, just to deter it 
On the other hand, there are also um, like experts on sanctions historically that say that sanctions rarely work uh, unless they are directed at like really small nations um, and they rarely mm -hmm. produce the outcome that they're uh, supposed to produce in, in the minds of those who impose them. Um, and also just the, the, the cost to Russia as well, uh, like looking at it like from a humanitarian, humanitarian perspective, um, is there a potential argument to be made that some sanctions that, you know, could potentially end up hurting the Russian economy so badly that it collapses to fault and, you know, millions of people themselves become potentially, um, economic refugees, that some of those sanctions were disproportional, even if, we all, you know, agree that the invasion um, merits some response, um, and it was illegal. So those were my two questions, and uh, thank you for hosting this. Uh, yeah, well, on the on the first point, I, mean, I don't think you have to speculate very much. I mean, about what the no-fly zone would precipitate. I mean, I know I know there are different opinions in terms of military analysts saying that you know you could finagle a no-fly zone where it wouldn't necessarily mean com uh, direct combat between uh, the U.S. and Russia. But the reason why I say you don't need to speculate much is because Putin has explicitly said that any interference uh, of that kind would be met with massive retaliation. And, you know, uh, not that I take him at his word. I mean, nobody really nobody should, but uh, that's a pretty clear an unambiguous uh, statement of intent, right? So, um, and the, the, the whole point of a no-fly zone is to make it such that Russian jets cannot fly in the airspace, and that means shooting them down, right? So you can just assume that were it to be imposed, it would entail, like, the main objective of the operation would be to shoot down the jets. Um, and uh, the, the first sign of retaliation... You would think uh, if it's against uh, the, a U.S. jet uh, or uh, an other NATO jet, that would then presumably, um, meaning if Russia then counterattacks, that would then presumably uh, result in the triggering of Article 5, right? The NATO uh, Collective Defense Pact. And so you'd automatically have, or, you know, it seems like you would unavoidably have uh, a declaration of war more or less, through the NATO mechanism against uh, Russia, thus, uh, you know, effectively World War III. Um, I, 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 I don't want to, I wouldn't want to speculate too much as to how stuff would pan out, right, operationally, because it's a, it's a, just, it's just that speculation. And, uh, you know, these scenarios would be, would be, I would think, hugely chaotic. Um, but it seems to me like that, that those basic premises are kind of just a, uh, uh, I guess, uh, on its face, what a no-fly zone would give rise to. Um, at least if it's a no-fly zone intended to carry out what they, they're, they're saying it would be intended to carry out, which is to close the sky to Russian jets so it can no longer conduct, uh, you know, bombings and raids and, and, and whatnot. Um, so I don't, I don't know that that's really all that speculative. Um, it seems like you have to get into much deeper realms of speculation and say, oh, well, you could do it 
you know, with this kind of technological modification, and then that wouldn't necessarily mean warfare or it wouldn't necessarily mean that Russia would retaliate. Well, I mean, maybe, maybe it wouldn't, uh, but just based on what we know in terms of the expressions of Russian intent and the expressions of U.S. slash NATO intent as to what would be involved with a no-fly zone, then the uh, the inevitable culmination of that would be, you know, World, World War III. I mean, I don't think Marco Rubio, I don't agree with Marco Rubio's uh, foreign policy prognoses uh, very often, but I think, you know, he wouldn't be saying that, you know, no-fly zone is tantamount to World War III unless he believe that to be the case. I mean, he doesn't have much of an incentive, it seems, to uh, exaggerate the threat. Uh, if anything, he's been very <laughs> hawkish over the course of his entire career about the uh, purported nature of the Russian threat. Um, so I would just take him him and others uh, at their word, including, I mean, the Biden administration itself uh, says that it would be World War III. So um, I think it's a... It's a uh, it's, so it's just a valid working premise, right? Um, you know, on the on the point of sanctions, um, you know, it's 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 interesting to me because I, I've made this observation before, but it seems like the middle ground position in the U.S. So the position that's thought to be the kind of the most sensible, rational position that is the uh, just obvious thing to do. So if like you're a standard. Democrat or whatever in Congress, you know, you are maybe hesitant about the no-fly zone. You're not willing to go there yet. That's a step too far, too risk of a too high of a risk, right? But what you do want to do, and what you support the Biden administration doing, as they have, is impose unprecedented sanctions on Russia with the express intent of collapsing the economy and uh, engineering some kind of regime change. Um, you know, the British government and the French government uh, have said that outright. And uh, it's been very <laughs> clearly alluded to as the intent on the part of the U.S. I mean, the, the Secretary of State, Blinken, also said outright that uh, the purpose of the sanctions was so that Russian civilians um, feel the consequences for what their government has done. So they, they've dropped any pretext that uh, sanctions are not targeted at civilian populations uh, anymore. I mean, that used to be the pretext, even though it was never the case. But but sanctions, at least in Democratic administrations like the Obama administration, um, were uh, often imposed with the claim that uh, this was not meant to you know, unduly punish ordinary civilians. It was just about getting the government, to, the uh, targeted government, to change its behavior. Well, that's gone. I mean, now they're they're outright admitting that it's about punishing civilians for the purpose of. Supposedly to, I don't know, foment a revolution or uh, foment uh, a coup within uh, Russia. Uh, I mean, you know, if, if this kind of thing has worked in the past, I mean, you, you mentioned that it could be maybe effective with smaller governments, but even with smaller governments, it hasn't been particularly effective in the case of the U.S. I mean, I, I, I don't see any evidence. I mean, there's, I haven't seen anything empirical. Um, so not like ideology, not uh, sloganeering, not uh, political talking points, but like something p- empirical and demonstrable to show that sanctions levied by the U.S. against, say, a Venezuela or an Iran or a Cuba or even a Syria have uh, actually achieved what they've uh, purportedly been set out to achieve. Um, you know, if anything, you know, Iran right now, despite having under, I mean, the the Trump administration, you know, 
seemingly had to invent new new sanctions out of whole cloth uh, to figure out more stuff, more to slap onto Iran. Um, I mean, they were sanctioned out the wazoo, um, and has that improved Iranian behavior? Well, no. I still see now uh, warnings about how they're you know moving closer to a nuclear weapon, and you know it's the same refrain. Um, has uh, has it has have sanctions dislodged uh, Maduro in uh, Venezuela? No, uh, seemingly not. Uh, I mean, the C- Cuba thing is a farce. I mean, for, <laughs> they've been embargoed for sixty plus years. Um, so, but, but now we're all supposed to just accept and you know celebrate and you know uh, commend the imposition of sanctions on a country that is dramatically larger than any of these others that we've tried to impose such sweeping sanctions on. Um, and therefore, you, you would think the task is even uh, greater uh, in terms of sanctions achieving what they're supposed to achieve. Um, you know, this is the 11th largest uh, economy in the world. I mean, the people kind of malign Russia as just a, uh, you know, it's a, a gas station with nuclear weapons uh, or something to that effect, like the John McCain joke. Um, and yeah, maybe that's a roughly accurate representation of their exports and such, but it's still the 11th largest economy in the world. That's like nothing to sniff at. And, uh, we're trying to, you know, the U S and Europe are, uh, explicitly trying to destroy it without really much regard at all for what the collateral damage is. I mean, they posture as, uh, these pure hearted humanitarians who are just, uh, ever so moved by suffering of, uh, blameless civilians and their overt strategy right now is to uh, maximize that suffering on, on Russian civilians, you know, in this kind of totally unsubstantiated hope that it will somehow impel uh, Russia, you know, if they can't watch Netflix or if they, their athletes can't compete in national uh, sporting events uh, or international sporting events or um, whatever, uh, that that's somehow going to, lead to the overthrow of Putin? I mean, there's the causality there is like nowhere even close to established. It just seems to be that, you know, that we have to be perceived as, quote, doing something. Um, and uh, so, you know, this is what we're, quote, unquote, doing. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess one way you can sort of justify it um, is to say that, you know, when there is going to be some kind of talks between Russia and Ukraine or Russia and Ukraine plus you know, Ukraine's allies uh, about ceasefires or other deals that are going to end this war, all of those sanctions can be used as leverage. Um, as I believe, you know, the sanctions on Iran were used as leverage to achieve the Iran deal, um, as far as I know. Uh, so yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that, that's yeah. the story that the Obama administration tells, but I, I still am not convinced uh, that, that, that the sanctions were in any way decisive in facilitating the Iran deal. I know people claim they were, um, but even if they were decisive, um, I still think that, you know, inhibiting the ability of ordinary Iranian civilians to get like medical supplies and have basic access to financial markets to just sustain their life is still, uh, yeah, no, I agree. Not a morally sound principle. Um, but, and also like this idea that, uh, I mean, I just don't see, um, much to suggest that Russia can be coerced into giving success, uh, 
concessions on the basis of the removal of sanctions. I don't know if you read or listened to Putin's um, address yesterday, but, you know, there were portions of it that got attention where he called, you know, he denounced like this fifth column of Russians who right. uh, live right. in Miami or in uh, the French Riviera or whatever. Um, and uh, you know, basically seemed to declare that, you know, I don't know who, who can read that speech and think that there's uh, some sort of ceasefire in the near future. I mean, maybe, who knows? Um, but uh, anyway, but the, there was a, a long kind of like second portion of that speech because it was actually sort of some kind of economic forum. And, uh, you know, he devoted you know, paragraphs to explaining how uh, sanctions would not actually, uh, have not actually jeopardized the Russian economy in a significant way, um, and that he was reorganizing certain uh, economic uh, sort of administrative bodies and uh, increasing different payments to families and so on and so forth. So it seems like there's a pretty uh, well, uh, a pretty extensively developed kind of program uh, in place, at least if you read what he said, but I don't know, I don't have any first-hand verification that this is actually being implemented, but at least uh, rhetorically, and the, he, he, he's claiming that the policy, uh, uh, that, that sanctions are not uh, the threat that uh, the, rest, the West would have us believe. Uh, but I, I think that, you know, it doesn't preclude them actually inflicting real suffering, which I think they are. Um, but in terms of changing behavior or being, being able to be used as leverage, I mean, I just don't know what the evidence is for that other than just kind of conjecture. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe you're right. Yeah. yeah. All right. Um, thanks. Uh, armchair. Thank you. Thank and I'm going to go to, uh, Carol. Carol, uh, go ahead. If you're there on mute. Okay. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. All right. Um, I really uh, think it's cool that you went over to Poland. I, I think that was a great idea. And I was just curious about when you're coming back. Do you have a plan? <laughs> Are you going to greet me at the airport? <laughs> <laughs> no, um, I, mean, uh, I don't think I live near you, for one thing. Yeah. Um, well, actually, so I'm going to be uh, in Poland for around another week or so. And then I'm, uh, believe it or not, headed to uh, Brussels, Belgium, uh, to go to attend the uh, this what's being called an extraordinary NATO summit um, on the twenty oh, fourth. Yes. Okay. So I'm going to, uh, if all goes according to plan, uh, cover that, and uh, from there I am going to be going to uh, England for a while because my, uh, my my girlfriend happens to live there. So not a journalistic thing necessarily uh, for a couple weeks, and then. Uh, then probably be back in the U.S. Uh, I don't know, mid to late April, something like that. Okay, I was just curious. No, no big deal. But um, <laughs> you know, I was just curious. I appreciate your curiosity. It's, I was it's, curious uh, how long you're going I'm to be reporting from Poland. You know, I <laughs> yeah, saw yeah. your um, I saw your pictures of the um, the facility outside, or like you said, it was like 12 miles or so, or 25 miles from, or 25 kilometers maybe from the Ukraine border where all this stuff was being unloaded or whatever. Mm -hmm. And that, that really bothers me that we're arming Ukraine so much. I, I can't, it really bothers me. And, um, but it, you got so much um, flack for 
for posting those pictures from these idiots uh, from mainstream media and from the Lincoln Project. Um, yeah, which I thought was pretty funny. I mean, well, I mean, the Lincoln Project guy. I mean, there's this guy. Okay, <laughs> you're gonna get me worked up, but there's this guy from the Lincoln Project who has been and you know, look, attacks are not, nothing new to me. So yeah, that's that's not really the issue. Um, but you know, I, I don't like when they kind of lie or misrepresent, like um, or kind of purport to have caught me in peddling a falsehood or something. So they were saying that I. Um, falsely claimed that certain trucks uh, were were U.S. trucks when they were actually Polish trucks. And the thing is, I didn't say that they were <laughs> U.S. trucks. I said that there's a U.S. military installation at this airport at, at uh, Zhezhev. And abutting this U.S. military installation at the airport itself are these convoys of trucks that are clearly being used to ferry weaponry into Ukraine. So the U.S. has established command over this entire airport area. Um, and uh, so, you know, it's <laughs> obviously engaged with uh, Polish authorities in, uh, in, these, in the, the equipment of these trucks. But for some reason, you know, one thing that people who hate you online try to do is like catch you in some kind of technicality or something where you're actually been proven wrong. Um, but you know, but that's that's neither here nor there. I mean, they, they did the same thing uh, last week when I, I reported um, based on sources that I had within the National Guard Bureau, right? So the National Guard Bureau is basically like the federal um, entity that coordinates uh, National Guard activity within the Pentagon, right? So the uh, coordinates amongst, I think it's the 52 different National Guard uh, Army and uh, Air Force branches, uh, the, the, the forces, right? Um, and you know, what, they, uh, what I, they told me was that, look, you know, the day after the invasion, they got this directive to uh, change their attire. Uh, they had previously worn into the, into the office, you know, um, dress attire on two days, uh, two days a week. And then all of a sudden, you know, when you have this deployment of, uh, NATO rapid response forces and the invasion happens, they get a, you know, directive from a, an executive, uh, officer to, uh, change their attire and have full come in full, uh, combat attire, um, each day. And, you know, it sounds sort of trivial, right? Uh, but, you know, uh, the, according to, you know, I, I talked to multiple people who independently said that they, that this was a response to the invasion. Um, and. Who, what during, nationality were these, gar- these people? The, what, the, the, they were telling you this? Were they Polish or American? No, no, these are Americans. These are Americans. Okay. This is this is the yeah. This is in this is like outside DC. I mean, this is I just oh, happened to be in oh, Poland okay. when I was told about this. Yeah. Okay. Um, um, and you know what I was told from somebody with you know direct knowledge was, was that you know these 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 uh, adjustments to the kind of attire uh, policy around attire. You know, it sounds like frivolous maybe to somebody on the outside. But, you know, within the sprawling military bureaucracy, sometimes these little orders can actually have significant um, implications. Uh, you know, what the kind of symbolic intent is is to kind of signify solidarity with uh, fellow soldiers in a war zone, right, mm-hmm. or in, in a combat posture. So, he, the, so the, this person 
suggested that it was an indication that they were trying to symbolically portray uh, the National Guard, anyway, as having entered into some uh, sort of combat posture. So, you know, when I'm told that and I get, get it corroborated by uh, other people, um, it seems to be worth uh, reporting, right? And But, you know, so then I reported it and you have these LinkedIn Project guys and there are also these these rep- journalists who work in like the, the the defense industry more or less i mean they they they're like quasi journalist quasi journalistic outfits like you know military times or uh, you know military you know military.com or the or army defense times one. yeah defense one i mean these are basically trade publications for the industry um, and even at one point, you know, one of the guys attacking me most aggressively was a journalist who, you know, works for the army times and is simultaneously working for the, for the human resources department at the national guard. So he's a Pentagon employee. Oh, wow. Right? Um, and you know, it doesn't apparently there's no conflict of interest there at all. Um, but you know, they'll, they'll try to spin stuff as like, I, I'm wrong even though none of the assertions about the implications of this order derived from me. I mean, I quoted the people who, uh, who worked there who told me what their, what the implications were. Um, but anyway, but they've been, they've been after me and, uh, you know, they, they tried to say that I, um, I don't know. I mean, I, I went, I, I took photos of these publicly uh, visible uh, bases, right? Um, yeah. where the, the convoys are being armed uh, you know, and thinking that, you know, it's in the public interest to report, not that I have. I, and and the, this idea was that I was, you know, an idiot for thinking that I uncovered some clandestine operation and or something. And, uh, you know, it was just ridiculous. And I, of course, I never said anything like that. Um, the, the, the best the best thing was when there was this uh, report, uh, some editor at Reuters was saying, look, uh, how stupid is uh, Michael Tracy uh, when he could have just gotten all the information about what's happening here from Pentagon press releases? I mean, he said that. <laughs> um, like, like that should be the sum total of the information that the public oh, has about what explore, the military yeah. is doing is yeah. uh, from official Pentagon press releases. So, yeah, I mean, people attack. I mean, I didn't. I, I wasn't trying to purport that I uncovered something. Uh, Hidden at the same time, we don't have, a, as I mentioned earlier in the in this call, and we don't have much information about like the logistics of these uh, weapons funneling uh, operations. Uh, they're expressly uh, the, the the Pentagon and the other governments are expressly concealing them. Um, they're 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 denying the ability of reporters to have any access to these facilities and even like stage managed and choreographed access uh like where they can just handpick a friendly reporter to come do a tour um, they're not even allowing that um but you know according to the journal the tough guy journalists and like the natsec guys and the think tank crew um you know none of this is worth uh, probing at all and you know I'm a moron for even uh, having the idea to maybe look into it. Uh, so yeah, that's basically what well, their, their position the, was. The propaganda effort over here is is outrageous. I mean, it's hard to believe. I mean, I can't believe it. And I'm wondering what it's like over there. I mean, like, are the Polish people? Do they hate Putin um, <laughs> or what? I mean, have you talked to very many people, like on like at a cafe or something? Um, yeah, you know, I have. Um, you know, it's interesting. Uh, a fair number of people who I, I, I ask about it, um, you know, I try, you try to do it uh, carefully because you don't want, just want to uh, 
bombard at some random citizen with like questions about <laughs> war and peace if they're not you know expecting it. But the the conversation that I have had, I've noticed that a, a number of people uh, almost don't even want to think about it. Um, hmm. They're trying to like block it out of their minds because they uh, because they think that Poland you know, could be next, right? Um, so they don't even really want to entertain it. Uh, right. Um, but, you know, when I do get them to elaborate a little bit more on their, their beliefs, yeah, I mean, there is definitely animosity toward Putin. I mean, no doubt. Mm. Um, you know, they, the, the polls, uh, from what I gather, um, especially older, uh, some older polls, um, uh, have what they believe to be a unique insight into kind of the nature of Russia, like or what they regard to be like the aggressively, the inherently aggressive and predatory nature of Russia, um, you know, and it's you know, <laughs> having been in the Soviet Union, you know, I don't uh, necessarily want to contest what they're saying outright, but I think it does sometimes result in a, a tad of paranoia. <laughs> let's say. Um, well, I know. I mean, Europe's foreign policy is partly being driven by Poland's paranoia, and among maybe some other countries. But yeah, yeah, and I try to be careful because I don't want to too casually discount the paranoia as like 100% unfounded. Even though, again, as I've said, uh, it strikes me implausible that Putin would invade Poland. But who can say anything with certainty at this point, right? Uh, it, but, you know. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, Paul, uh, Putin did telegraph his intent to invade uh, Ukraine. Maybe I was too. Uh, I was personally maybe too. Uh, I didn't appreciate that fully, um, but you know he put out that huge uh, manifesto last summer about uh, you know the historical uh, yes. interconnectedness between Russia and, and Ukraine and so on and so forth. He hasn't done anything really like that at all with with Poland. Um, but nonetheless, there is that that fear. Um, but yeah, I, I do think Poland is uh, is probably driving a lot of the uh, foreign policy calculation here, especially with regard to the the U.S. Um, and so that's one of the reasons why I came here. And you know, it's been uh, uh, you know, there, there. Uh, you know, the thing is, just like in the U.S., a lot of people are just trying to go about their ordinary lives and not really th- just don't want to think about politics. Mm-hmm. Um, but the people who are uh, invested, uh, the people who are kind of vocal about it, you know, I haven't heard anyone who was anything other than antagonistic to Putin. You know, wow. Maybe I'm not finding the right people. Um, and maybe I'm, there's a bias because. Uh, I'm only talking to, uh, you know, more, uh, uh, except for a couple of occasions, but I had somebody who could translate more, more or less. I'm talking to the people who could speak some English, mm. which is, which a lot of Poles can. Although, you know, actually it's funny nowadays because like even yesterday with some of the, uh, displaced Ukrainian, uh, women, they spoke a, a little bit of English, but not much. So we would like we'd both take out our smartphones and, uh, be typing stuff on our translation apps and communicating that way. Um, which is kind of funny. Um, so yeah, but uh, yeah, I guess, so maybe I'm biased by just who I happen to have encountered. Uh, but I haven't uh, heard anyone, even like the, there's a left wing party in um, Poland who is otherwise very uh, hostile toward the kind of ruling government, which is this conservative, you know, socially conservative party. Um, and even they have been very virulent in their denunciations of. Putin and their uh, mm. support for some kind of, you know, measures uh, to be taken against them, maybe not outright military intervention, but, you know, close to it. Um, 
So yeah, it seems like a pretty pretty uh, hardened uh, consensus here from from what I gather. Wow, that's too bad. Do you get a sense from the Ukrainian women, or you said mainly women that you're talking to? That I've only talked to women at this point. So yeah, it's all. all I mean, do they plan to go back to Ukraine once the conflict ends, or do you think that they're just they're forever gone from Ukraine? Uh, I think some do. You know, it's it's it, it was interesting. I was um, on I was driving to the the border yesterday, and I stopped at kind of a rest area, and I saw uh, there was a, a car full of uh, you know, three women who were in the same rest area, right? And uh, I noticed they had a Ukrainian uh, license plate, so I asked them, and it was like in the direction toward Ukraine. So I asked them, "Are you are you going to Ukraine?" <laughs> and they're like, "Yeah." And I said, um, "Is it safe?" And they said, "No." And I said, so why are you going? And they said, no, well, because we want to go home. So, yeah, yeah that's, yeah. that's that. Um, I think they're, they're, I think, you know, I think it'll be mixed. I mean, there are some that are probably permanently displaced, especially those that are, you know, coming to the U.S., which, you know, the consulate is expediting their visas for. Um, I spoke to one, uh, woman yesterday who was, uh, you know, basically a, prof- I mean, one of the reasons why she wanted to, she stayed in, um, around Kharkiv as long as she did, despite it being the, the site of some of the worst fighting and destruction is because she had like a you know, professional job. She's actually a psychologist. So she thought that she had an obligation to, you know, keep working there. And, uh, you know, it eventually became, uh, you know, uh, intolerable. So she had to leave uh, and come to Poland, but she, you know, she wants to go back as soon as possible. Um, where there are others who I think probably will never go back. So, you know, hmm. just, a, it's a mixed bag. Okay. All right. Well, that's that's it. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks, Carol. Okay. Bye. All right. Uh, Nasser, you're up. Hey, hi, Michael. How are you? Um, good, thanks. Thanks so much. So I just want to talk about two issues, actually, that uh, I've been reading some of the articles, and I've also been following you and others. Uh, I, I, I'm Afghan. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, and I've been living in the United States for a long time now. But I'll give you a parallel, actually, because uh, I just read an article in, in Washington Post where they said that, you know, that uh, um, that Western officials say that while they cannot in, independently verify much of the battlefield information that uh, the Kiev uh, puts out, it nonetheless represents highly effective strategic communication, which means that, you know, they don't do much in the, on the battlefield, but they're good in strategic communication. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> so the same thing happens. Well, that's so, I think that's true. I mean, I'm not inclined to necessarily agree with whatever anonymous U.S. officials are saying, but they're right that the strategic communications, if nothing yeah. else, on the part yeah. of the Ukraine government has been effective. I'll give you a very practical example in Afghanistan because these uh, civil society organizations, quote-unquote, they used to teach like uh, government officials and these media in Afghanistan how to how to communicate. But uh, like like in Afghanistan, the Afghan army, you, you know, was winning. And all of a sudden, in two weeks... Yeah. The whole system, the whole the whole state, you know, collapsed in two weeks. Right. And the and the strategic and the strategic communication, you know, didn't help that much. <laughs> right. 
Well, yeah. I mean, t- speaking of strate- think of strate- uh, think of this in terms of strategic communication, right? Clearly, they're all very well versed on social media, right? Yeah. They're they're, they're uh, pushing out narratives constantly on on Twitter and TikTok and uh, Instagram and so on, to yeah. the point where when the Ukraine defense minister or yeah. the Ukraine uh, foreign minister or any of these other officials, whenever they just make an assertion about something that's happened. Whether it's you know Russia allegedly shelling uh, like a nuclear plant, which you know wasn't quite true, although you know clearly there was dangerous fighting in the vicinity of the of a, this particular uh, nuclear plant a few weeks ago, they they were making uh, the the uh, official claim by the Ukrainian minister that you know a chur- t- uh, something ten times worse than Chernobyl was imminent. That wasn't true, and yet what happens? You have. American media outlets and pundits and people with huge yeah. followings, uh, including yeah. Piers Morgan, who I had a fight with today. Yeah, yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. They they just reflexively will just pass along these claims as though they're reported fact. Yeah. Um, and it happens over and over again. I mean, you see just full articles written by like NBC News and stuff, where it's just like you know, such and such happened, and when you read it. It turns out the source is just the tweet from the Ukraine official, right? So I mean yeah. that's a that's a pretty effective um, communications uh, that's reflective of pretty effective communications on their their part in terms of making sure that their narrative is utterly dominant. I mean I think their narrative will be dominant anyway because there's a, this ideological like undercurrent um, in the U.S. that would be promoting it. Uh, yes. Regardless, yeah. but but uh, nonetheless, I mean, they have done an effective job. I mean, just look at the reaction to Zelensky. It's amazing. I mean, he's like the yeah. second coming of Churchill. He's yeah. this. Uh, you know, nobody's even allowed. I mean, I, I'm I, I'm saying that as uh, hyperbole, but like pretty much nobody's really allowed to question him at all. Yeah. Um, and even if you're disinclined to accede to his demand for. A no-fly zone, which would result in World War III, like you have to be like very polite about it and uh, assume and like it's it's seen as taboo to even note that he's calling for something that would lead to World War III, as I can personally vouch for in terms of the response uh, to I, me. I don't want to you know, over-exaggerate my like centrality to this, but it's just uh, in aggregate. Yeah, I mean, it's I would think yeah, those uh, was, U.S. Uh, officials are right. And, uh, I, and it's and interesting because I, 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 oh, and, I th- and I think yeah, sorry to <laughs> uh, talk over you, but I think it's actually it's worth contrasting with the um, so the strategic. To what extent does the efficacy of these strategic communications the cloud? Ground. You're right. Cloud perceptions <laughs> of the efficacy of the actual military. Uh, 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 strategy of the of ukrainians we're told that they've put up a fierce resistance and putin never could have expected it and maybe that is true to some extent i don't know for sure uh but i I, you gotta think that this uh overwhelming dominance of their uh, narrative that's being pushed out accounts for a lot of this um media driven perception that they're they're uh, exceeding expectations uh militarily and russia is somehow faltering i mean and last i checked i'll give an example yeah I'll give an example, like in Afghanistan, like two weeks before the collapse of the whole system, they were saying that, you know, they have the strategy, you know, the government has a strategy and they will, you know, they will defeat the Taliban and, and nothing happened. (laughs) The whole, the whole, you know, the whole government, you know, they just, you know, fled, they just left the country 
just like in a heartbeat, you know? Yeah. So, and, and, and also I think this, this strategic communication stuff, I mean, in my opinion, this strategic communication kind of like, it creates like illusion of agency and illusion of something you, you are doing that basically you are not doing it, basically nothing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> same, I think you're right about that. Same, same thing happened. I mean, I mean, I don't know much about, I mean, the Ukraine, but the only example I have, like a very recent one is actually Afghanistan that I know much and I follow and I have a family there. Mm-hmm. It just happened the same way. They were saying that, you know, everything is fine. Everything will be fine. We can do this one. We can do that one. And actually there was nothing in there. And the minute, you know, the foreign forces left, the whole system just, you know, it fell apart. Yeah. I mean, I think I think there's some truth to what you're saying. I'm not sure if it's totally analogous uh, in a couple senses in that, you know, clearly there is genuine resolve on the part of a lot of the Ukrainian populace to to fight, uh, probably more so than there was uh, in Afghanistan, where the, the U.S. propped up government was basically just a, a fiction um, yeah. and had, had, had nowhere near the kind of popular support that would have been required to actually ward off an advance of Taliban uh, fighters. Um, yeah. So I, I think it's, it's, it's different uh, in Ukraine, but it doesn't necessarily detract from your overall point, which is that this uh, obscurantism of the quote-unquote strategic communications that they're clearly excelling at yeah. um, uh, maybe is uh, distorting or warping uh, perceptions of a lot of the uh, facts on the ground, especially as they're, they're filtered through the U.S. media, which is like, you know, deeply emotionally invested and ideologically committed to the yeah. triumph of one side. Uh, that's so. true. That's true. That's absolutely true, yeah. And... Uh... That's it. And I, actually, I want to ask you about something like about foreign fighters. I mean, I be- yeah. I, 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 I have this like, I, I have, I think, or I would say, I would, I would assume that, uh, that some of the Islamists in Syria who are like, who were basically very angry at Russia because, you know, Russia was involved and Russia was involved in their defeat. Uh, and they are, they might, they might, they might also join in, in my opinion. I don't know because you know, and Turkey has a lot of yeah. a lot of influence in that regard. And Erdogan is a despicable person. Like, and if he will send them, like, if if he knows he can get something, you know, in return. Well, I mean, there were there have been these reports that Putin is apparently recruiting, you know, Syrian fighters to come to Ukraine. I don't know if that's materialized or you know what the. Genesis sides, about yeah. is, but you know, it's uh, but it's it's possible, and you know, probably in both in both directions, which is you know, <laughs> just another indication of this uh, you know internationalization of the war, which yes. to me is a extremely pessimistic development in terms of like the intractability of the war. Like once you have all these different warring factions with different agendas, um, yeah. and you have this kind of uh, cauldron of uh, chaos. Uh, it's it's it seems to me that it's uh, all the more difficult to actually achieve any kind of resolution that will actually be um, abided by on all fronts. Um, yeah. uh, like you said, reminiscent of, of Syria itself. All right. Um, thank you, uh, Nasser. Thank um, you so much. Thank you so much. Yep. Have a great one. Yep. Uh, Going to go to uh, Matthew, regular uh, interlocutor, I believe. Uh, yes, indeed. Can you hear me, uh, Michael? My internet's kind of a little funky. Yeah, yeah, I can hear you. 
Okay, great. Um, I just want to share a comment, and then I have a, um, a question for you. So I think regarding your point about sanctions, I just wish to anecdotally share that several Russians I know through my, my partner's Russian, um, you know, there seems to be who were very angry at the outset of war at Putin. There seems to be a, um, a kind of ambivalence about participating in anti-war activism, not only because of obviously the massive consequences, but because of the sense that there is an anti-Russian uh, not merely anti-Putin, but anti-Russian um, sentiment behind a lot of the, if you will, we could call it anti-war, meaning, mm-hmm. you know, in the context of Russia, it would be anti-war, anti-war activism, and like the anti against what Russia is doing. So, yeah, well, um, I mean, I think, I think they're, right, they're, right, they're right to perceive that. Yeah, I mean, one analogy I'd say is like, I mean, look at like racial justice movements or trans rights movements in the, in the United States, like, one of the reasons I think woke is a stupid ideology is I think these are very real and important issues. But, you know, if, if the ideal, if, if the voice is white man bad, like even if people should morally participate in movements to help marginalized groups, they're going to be simply less inclined to do so. That's just human psychology and human selfishness. So and I think here the the negativity directed toward Russians rather than all the branch um, is having a very negative effect uh, psychologically, demoralizing effect on people who are pushing this because it's like, okay, yeah, the people who are trying to destroy us economically and are laughing at us, you know, at, 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 at um, you know, bread lines or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I just uh, saw that I had a message from you, uh, Matthew, uh, where you asked me to do a story covering Russian individuals suffering the sanctions. Yeah. Yeah. I, well, I actually, you know, um, I didn't like profile any Russian individuals, but I did do an article, um, few days ago that was you know, uh, partially about how the pretense has been dropped, right? And the, mm-hmm. uh, the sanctions are expressly intended to inflict suffering on Russian civilians now. Um, so it seems like that message has been <laughs> understood. And I don't, I'm not surprised that it would dampen their enthusiasm or their uh, even, you know, willingness to uh, engage in uh, anti-Russian, anti, uh, sorry, anti-war activism um, because... Yeah. They are being conflated with Putin um, and being right. told that they must be made to, to feel consequences due to what Putin has done. So, yeah, I mean, right. and it's contrary to self-respect to to even if the movement is, is, is morally righteous, it's contrary to self-respect to join a movement that says, hey, I'm bad. Yay, I should suffer. Yay. You know, <laughs> which is which is the tone of, of, of so much of this. Not all that you can't say that's that's everybody. But there's at least a tolerance of anti-Russian rhetoric in the movement. And if you challenge it, they say, oh, the, the, the Ukrainian should be your moral priority, which is just a stupid... I mean, if you have a friend who who's American, let's say, and lost her job today, would you say, no, I'm not going to comfort you or he, him or her because Ukrainians are... It's stupid, you know? But And it's just a tool of, of xenophobia and, and dehumanization, in my view. Yeah, and it's also, it's also counterproductive to what the stated aim of the sanctions supposedly are, right? I mean, if, if you're saying that's having the opposite effect of energizing resistance to Putin, then it's it's totally contrary to what the alleged purpose is, which is, gets to back to what I was saying about the uh, futility of sanctions earlier and how there's just no empirical record that they actually achieved the uh, stated uh, strategic yeah. objectives. Uh, Very, and also when you're talking about, I mean, it, it, another thing that people enjoy doing is like ridiculing 
and again, a xenophobic way, like ridiculing Russia. Ha ha. They're not producing anything. And they're, I mean, they are the 12th, they're not uh, Western not nation by any means economic wise, but they're the 12th largest economy in the world. You know, their GDP per capita is reasonably, is reasonably high. I thought it's it was 11th our, last I checked, but yeah, same. Something same like difference. that. Yeah. yeah. But, 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 oh, M- Michael, you're such a pedant. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> Only because I actually said the 11th largest no, bro, earlier I, I, in this I'm, chat, so I wanted to yeah, nail it down. Yeah, but it, it, to me, it's demoralizing, even as someone who's only indirectly involved in this, because I, I don't want to, I just don't want to line up with people who seem to be against people I love, you know? <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. and that's the tone of this movement, and it, there's just a spitefulness that I think is, is characteristic often of war fever, and also kind of mainstream American culture right now, you know? I well, mean, yeah, all, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to extrapolate too much from my own you know, online experience because that could be a huge distortion, bro. but you know, <laughs> it is the case that, you know, and this has been true for the past, like, you know, going on six years, uh, but it, it's, it's, it's intensified to you know, a breaking point now where, you know, just people are coming out of the woodworks to just make, you know, uh, you know, they'll call me McHale or they'll, um, you know, outright accuse me of being paid by Putin. I mean, this is not, not, this is nothing new, right? But, the, but I'm just like an American journalist trying to present an alternate perspective. So I, I can only imagine, like, what if you are Russian and you, you, you want to be sort of conscious about potentially what your government is doing that is wrong. But at, at the same time, you have to deal with this kind of frenzy that is, um, again, overtly conflating you with the, the state. And I could see how that would then result in like a rallying, almost like a, even if it's just half-hearted, maybe just start kind of rallying around the flag type effect uh, where, you know, <clears throat> yeah, maybe Putin's bad, maybe he shouldn't have launched the war, but at the same time, our very existence is being challenged and and undermined um, by these um, outsiders who are in like a craze. Yeah. And, and what's disturbing too, is that you can't even make moral distinctions. So um, on any other question. So for example, if you were to say, as I certainly would argue that, you know, Benjamin Netanyahu was a brutal killer, but he isn't Hitler. He isn't the menace to the world the same way Hitler is. He doesn't intend to like completely liquidate the Palestinian people, even though I'd certainly argue he's an ethnic cleanser and has killed quite a few people. But you can't. You can make that moral distinction. People would would accept. I mean, maybe some like Richard Medhurst would get mad, but like most normal people would would accept that moral distinction. Yeah. Shouldn't invade Israel because of Netanyahu's crimes. But you can't. You cannot say uh, this is horrible. Putin's doing it, or he's uh, he's not Hitler for X Y Z reason. Because then they'll put in your face, uh, you know, dead people from from war or, or suffering of refugees, which is tragic. But again, like. We have to have some ability to engage in critical reasoning and drawing moral distinctions here. And implicitly, we don't think he's Hitler because if we did, we should go to war. You go to war to, to stop Hitler. I mean, he was commit he was committing genocide against like you know multiple ethnic groups in the Second World War, enslaved like fifteen million people from Eastern. He had this weird theory that Eastern Europeans were not Aryan, like especially Slavs and Untermenschen, and so he, he was he had like multiple genocides. So it's not. It's not. Well, you're 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 right about that. I mean, it's like, and this is actually, you know, this relates back to different examples of extremely hyperbolic rhetoric on the domestic front. You know, I'm thinking of certain ways in which Trump was depicted, where he was 
supposedly yeah. the this um, fascist menace who had seized control of the reins of state, and you know he would be accused of imposing concentration camps. Remember that. Um, and, uh, he was just out of his mind and was going to, you know, launch a nuclear war on and on and on, you know, the most kind of extreme renderings of Trump. And it never saw, it, it never struck me as consistent with like what one would do if they actually felt that the right. American government had been taken over by a Hitler type figure. I mean, what, so you're gonna your your quote unquote resistance is just gonna consist of hashtags and maybe you know wanting to support the Mueller investigation. It's not gonna consist of any like actual. I mean they 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 pick the term resistance to invoke the French resistance, which was like a real resistance. Uh, yeah. But then it was for them it was just like kind of a branding exercise. So there's a disconnect between the intensity of the rhetoric and the um, uh, n- relative non intensity of the commitment they were yeah, willing and to I, make. I think- Again. And it's similar. It's similar now with the Hitler analogies. Like I don't know if you saw. I tweeted earlier. There was this. Uh, there's this uh, Canadian official who was a former uh, defense minister and for, uh, former uh, attorney general of Canada, who uh, posted like a meme type photo where you know it's uh, Hitler. Uh, sorry, it's uh, Putin riding a train and he's looking at his reflection in the mirror and or in the window and it's Hitler. And you know this guy Peter McKay saying a chilling image that reflects reality. Which well, okay. I mean, if it reflects reality, why aren't you calling? I mean. You're then content with the Canadian government just sending some weapons? I mean, that's going to be the full extent of your resistance to, to who you're saying is Hitler 2.0? It doesn't seem like it really uh, matches up. <laughs> it's an illustration of – just in the context of Poland, I mean, in response to the Warsaw Uprising in 44 not – I'm not talking about the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising of Polish Jews, but the Warsaw Uprising of Poles in general against the Nazis – the reprisals they carried out, including raising Warsaw as a whole, like more Poles died in the in the course of this than uh, Japanese died in the nuclear bombings of America, um, of mm-hmm. that country. I mean, so the, the level of brutality by Nazism, I, I think people maybe should just read more about not, what, what the Nazis yeah. actually did. What, the, the extermination of the Jews, of course, we focus on it, but sometimes there are other, I think there are other... Uh, genocides that Nazis carried out that are forgotten and kind of this notion of the Eastern intervention is I think at least in the West uh, largely forgotten and you know it, yeah I mean like I don't I don't blame I mean especially in the speech uh, yesterday this, this address there was some there was some very troubling rhetoric from uh, Putin where he's mm-hmm. railing against scum and you know talking about uh, the you know like decade like, a, like I think he said something like um, I have to pull up the transcript but it was something like the Russian state is being purified right now because the scum yes, and the yes. fifth Very have been brother. exiled. Yeah, so it's um, it's bad, brutal, uh, but, it doesn't, but, but it doesn't. I mean, I, I, I uh, you know, in college, I did this whole uh, Holocaust studies class where you, we got you know deep into the um, kind of the mythology and the uh, the ideology that was underpinning this. And you know, this is not anything new, but it was. It's a very uh, it's a very uh, it's it's an ideological sort of superstructure that was erected around uh, Nazism. Yeah. It just doesn't strike me as a, in any way reflected in what Putin is currently doing. Uh, notwithstanding whatever troubling indications he's now definitely giving, but yeah, I mean, but th- if I were to make that point, like if I were to make exactly that point right now, I mean, thankfully people in Colin, I'm assuming, are <laughs> relatively favorably disposed to me, so they're not just going to assume that I'm. 
some kind of sinister freak when I uh, say stuff like this. But you know, if I were to tweet just like a, a 280 character version of what I just said there about the distinction between Nazis and Hitler, um, or uh, sorry, Nazis and uh, the Russian government right now. Oh, you're going to be mean um, for, that, for that. Yeah, I mean, I would be, uh, you know, I'll be, you know, be flooded with people. Clearly, you're defending, defending, defending trying Putin. to differentiate Hitler from the Nazis. Clearly, there, defending Putin. Yeah, yeah, and like that. And that's just a that's just a way to stigmatize uh, debate. And you know, that's why yeah. you know, maybe some people. I, I know uh, <laughs> some friends of mine. I thought it was like a bit of a perfunctory almost a capitulation for me to condemn the invasion when i did because mm-hmm. they think that it was just like this coerced thing where i'm just doing it as a uh a pr exercise well um no but i mean i, I actually made sure because I, I actually thought it was the right thing to do from a moral standpoint that you know the first thing i said about the invasion literally once it occurred um was to uh condemn it and now i can confirm i can also confirm weeks later that my having condemned it does not actually insulate me from charges that i'm Right. Putin. <laughs> well, now at least you can feel good that you that you um, condemned it for uh, moral and point of moral rectitude, and not to yeah, try yeah, to exactly. grovel before these people. I guess yeah. I have I have one more uh, little question. Yeah. So um, I'm just wondering whether so you know uh, we've we've talked about this before, um, like because of the history and so on. The and understandably to a great extent, really, they have been victimized by Russia. Poles have, um, you know, have a lot of suspicion of, of Russia, and and are, are and you know are, are very anti-Putin, understandably. But um, I'm wondering whether that has translated to like Russophobia, like contempt for Russians as people, rather than merely criticism of Russia and Putin, fear of invasion, calls for escala- escalation, etc., which are obviously. We can disagree with with the call for escalation, certainly, but they're obviously distinct from condemning Russians as people. Yeah, yeah, you know, not that I've seen uh, yet. Uh, I haven't, you know, admittedly, uh, kind of probed that angle of it as much um, in talking to people. Uh, I did uh, notice, and I reported on this, and people were, you know, criticizing me, saying, "So what?" Well, I mean, I don't know. It was notable, I thought, or at least worth. <laughs> a couple of tweets that uh, in in Krakow when I was there um, a week ago or, or so, there you know were the these uh, you know the restaurants were changing their pierogi menus to to scratch out Russian pierogies, you know which is a type of pierogi, uh, and uh, replace it with Ukrainian. So that's like kind of it's just like a freedom fries type thing, and I don't know if it necessarily reflects like some sort of visceral hatred of the Russians as such, but you know. And you you can't uh, get Russian currency anymore uh, in at like currency exchanges in Poland. Uh, you know they've they've locked out. I mean, the, you can't access like RT is uh, banned um, mm-hmm. essentially. So I mean, I, I I now if I'm on a Polish internet connection, I can't uh, log on. I can't get the Pol- the RT YouTube channel. I can't. Uh, Worse, you're denied uh, your you life. I mean, I, clearly you're you're paid off, so you're denied your life. <laughs> yeah, I can't. Uh, they're actually you know uh-huh. RT was a. Available on certain uh, TV programs previously, uh-huh. and now yeah. it's just like a black screen. Um, so, so I, I think uh, that has to, you know, this sort of collective uh, banishment of Russia um, yeah. has to, to have some effect on attitudes towards mm-hmm. individual Russians eventually. Um, but you know, in just my kind of day to day interactions and observations, I haven't seen it um, expressed yet. But maybe I should probe it a little more. Yeah. Um, all right, Matthew. Uh, thank you. And... I just have one more quick. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll, really quick. I'm sorry, Michael. I'm sorry to 
Tim, I'm sure you'd want to sock me in the face if we were in person uh, for taking this long. But uh, I do recommend that you read, if you haven't read this book, Bloodlands by Timothy Snyder. Timothy Snyder went woke and weird and called Trump a Nazi, but he did serious history I read, I, I, I read, I read Timothy Snyder's book on uh, – it was like a guide to combating fascism or something. It was yeah, like a yeah, little that's track that he wrote terrible. after the uh, 2016 yeah, election. Really, it was awful. Yeah, it's a terrible book. I'm not recommending that rubbish. I'm talking about – he wrote a history of Ukraine during the uh, Second World War, and I think it's an excellent book. I mean mm. he kind of – yeah, he went – he just went mad over Trump. But he did yeah. serious historical work before, then. this isn't about politics. Um, so I do highly recommend that book to learn more about Ukrainian history because I think Second World War history is in the backdrop of a lot of this. We're talking about Poland, its views, yeah. and so on. Yeah, it might be uh, – that's a – you know, thank you for the recommendation. You know, I, I listened to yeah. – um, I listened to Timothy Snyder was on Democracy Now. Uh, maybe like the five days or so after the uh, invasion, I did listen to his appearance there, and he was, uh, you know, quote unquote debating, or he was appearing alongside uh, Andrew Coburn, whose uh, book I just read, and I actually really recommend um, called "The Spoils of War." Um, it's it's kind of just a collection of uh, of articles, really. Um, but there's yeah. stuff on NATO and Russia, and uh, in particular the. U.S. nuclear arsenal, which is like the management of which is just insane when you actually read the details of it. Um, but anyway, you if, know, you read Bloodlands, you'll, if you read Bloodlands, you will be shocked that someone who produced this kind of magisterial, yeah. very <laughs> intensive, scrutinized work could come up with the rubbish he did with the guide to fascism or whatever. Yeah, I mean, the, it, who knows? Well, I mean, it's, a, it's a, I don't that's it's a disservice to him right. then that most people became aware of him through his kind of unhinged. Yeah, I uh, think there. Are, I do theories. recommend Bloodlands though. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. I was just going to say that you know in the uh, in this uh, Democracy Now uh, segment, it, it kind of rubbed me a lot the wrong way a little a little bit because he repeated this argument that I have seen a lot and has been directed at me at times, which is that like uh, if you in any way focus on the American role, whether it's NATO expansion or uh, it's diplomatic ineptitude or whatever its provocations might have been of Russia, like you're denying the agent, like for, for, in the case of NATO expansion, you're denying the agency of these Eastern European countries who wanted to join NATO. And it's actually like a Western, it's like a, I forget what term he used, but it's like a, uh, you know, an America centric or uh, like a Western uh, chauvinistic uh, interpretation. And so he's, 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 he's using this kind of terminology that like registers amongst, like yeah. uh, leftist as uh, uh-huh. overly deferring to like American oh, like primacy or something. The West is, is like has all the agency. I mean, no, no. Like, he's saying he's saying that what he's saying what that people who are focused that. on what he's saying that what people who focus excessively on like NATO expansion are doing is committing the sin of centering the Western perspective, and they're not allowing for the agency of the Eastern European countries who, for example, wanted to join NATO, which is kind of a clever move on his part. Um, you know, maybe it does stem, you know, so that means like we're just not allowed to, so if we, if we discuss NATO expansion, then we're, that's tantamount to denying the agency of the, you know, these Eastern European countries who wanted to join NATO because they're afraid of Russia or whatever. Um, and no, maybe there's, I'm sure there is some truth to that. Uh, but at the same time, it's like being kind of deployed now as like an argument stopping. I mean, you could I say, you could say that how dare Poles focus on Stalin's aggression against them in 1939 because then they're distracting from nazism implying nazis were the lesser evil i mean the russian actually russian nationalists 
have a line like this. Like if you focus on, well, Stalin really enabled Hitler the first couple of years of the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. And look at this aggression in the Baltic states and Poland. He was uh, engaged in aggressive war too. Then people in Russia will claim, well, you were just apologizing for the invasion of the USSR or you think the USSR was the greater evil and people aren't actually saying that, you know? Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, uh, thanks, uh, Matthew. Yep. Uh, Going to go to uh, Tim and then Eric, and then uh, that's it. Sorry, folks. Uh, we're over the two-hour two mark here. Uh, okay, Tim, you're up. Hey, Michael. Um, hey. Good job this week. You seem to have pissed off everyone, uh, <laughs> which is the, the only – the only thing you can do in these circumstances, it's a target-rich environment. So It's coming from a place of uh, love. Great. Yeah, indeed. Um, and Matthew and I were getting along great until Timothy Snyder came up. So oh. I'll have to think about that a little bit. Um, but I did want to um, raise something that uh, actually what I wanted, was calling in originally for was to really say what Nasser just said, which was he did a great job of it. Mm-hmm. Which is um, yeah, that was a great call. I, I love the uh, the uh, Afghan perspective. Yeah, Sorry, I mean, yeah. you know, to me, it's there's a there's a you know one of the things that my biases in this this whole thing is if you read anyone, the pe- first people you read are um, military analysts because at least they've been disciplined under years of um, kind of having to re- you know report on stuff that you know. If they're wrong, people get killed. So there's a certain, like... Um, well, who do you mean by military analysts? I mean, do you like mean retired generals who now appear on TV as analysts? Or do you mean like like Rand Corp guys who are... Uh, no, I'm, I mean, I'm thinking of Scott Ritter. I'm thinking of... Uh, okay, yeah, yeah. The guy who runs Conflicts Forum. I'm thinking of... Uh, whose name escapes me right at the moment. Uh, uh, Andre Martinov, you know, is a really interesting man. And I mean... One of the things I wanted to say was, uh, you know, the bombing of that, um, you know, non-NATO, NATO, just like Gongos, right, uh, you know, base in uh, just on, over the border in Poland that mm-hmm. hasn't been really, I think, focused enough on is the fact that uh, those guys got no indication that there were incoming missiles, right? And, and the... Um, in terms of what that might mean. And so, I mean, if I would encourage Aramate, you, Max Blumenthal and stuff is, you know, talk to these guys. I mean, Putin's been talking about military technical solutions to these things. What does that phrase actually mean, right? I think what he's talking about is the fact that, you know, they've, they have an advantage here that hasn't been recognized. Um, and it's it's suggested by the fact that that attack took everyone by surprise there, and there's there's other instances of this, but um, you know I think there's a uh, and and this kind of goes hand in hand with the whole problem with you know the successful kind of PR campaign that you know if you if sure it's great, but if you lose all such situational awareness through it, then, you know, there's a price to pay for that. And, and actually I think there's a second order issue here where, um, the, 
the fact that we've become so confident about what's going on that it's it, when the, the shock when it comes that we 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 don't know what's going on and we don't know what the capabilities are and therefore we are you know we're talking about absurdities like a no fly zone and stuff actually becomes a huge uh you know liability just just in 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 practical terms of making this thing not end the world do you see what i'm getting at you know like there's a well yeah i mean i i do, I do think that the uh I'm, I'm not sure the significance of that attack uh that you mentioned that i talked about from the uh at the beginning of this call uh, has really been emphasized enough, uh, and yeah, I did hear. You know, the, the one reason why this guy who I, I met had was uh, injured and was so taken off guard is because you're right, there was no real warning, um, and uh, hence the large number of casualties. So you know, maybe this the this uh, kind of cavalier attitude toward dismissing uh, Russian uh, military capabilities is not particularly uh, well advised, uh, given that you know, they don't even seem to have deployed a lot of their most aggressive uh, tactics quite yet. And, you know, Putin, uh, a couple of years ago, you know, he had inaugurated the um, the uh, acquisition of these new weapon systems like hypersonic missiles and stuff. And, you know, so there's, there, it seems to me that, you know, we're still only uh, relatively uh, early on in this uh, conflict. And um, there might be more in store that kind of belies this uh, smug attitude that, you see a lot of Western commenters uh, adopt about Russian capacities. Yeah, I mean, Martinov um, is a. There's a book called uh, "The Real Revolution in Military Affairs" that I've read um, that I think is actually really rewarding and trying to understand. I mean, think about the frustration of you know the Russian government, let's say Putin, um, with the fact that they. You know, they have been voicing this stuff since at least 2007, right? That, you know, we're on the march on their borders. We, we've we seen what this happens twice. It's destroyed our society twice. Uh, you know, we don't see you in the way that you see yourself, which is we see you as a threat. And that's been ignored and kind of, and, and kind of actually in a, in a kind of schoolyard, you know, level of maturity kind of dismissed and kind of laughed at and so forth. And they're, they're really serious, right? I mean, they're clearly serious. And there's, so there's, there's a a bias here and I'm not suggesting that you suffer from this particularly at all, but I think, I do think there's a bias being in the West and being in this, you know, feeling like you're in the catbird seat here. And that's, I think that's, I think that might've all changed. And if we don't actually Here's a good example of why Martinov is so good. He, um, in in the book, that book that I just mentioned, he talks about um, you know the the, the kind of uh, equations that mean success or non-success in in, in salvos. Who, who is this person again? It's uh, Martinov. Andre Martinov. Yeah. M a r t n y a o v. I believe. Um, but anyway, the point of this is even, I mean, even the, um, the U.S. Navy graduate school in um, Monterey put out a paper about three months ago that basically, uh, you know, 
corroborated what he was saying. And, and really what it meant, I'll give you a brief rundown because I'm not a military analyst. I mean, I read some of this stuff, but what he's really saying was astonishing, right? Like, and, and this is, again, it's uh, corroborated by graduate school students at the U- universe, U.S. Navy school saying that basically two, two of the small frigates that Russian has with about, with about, I think it was 16 cells to release these missiles were worth like, or sorry, one of them was worth two burly class, um, burly class frigates. Um, so, and again, he's talking about time and space. So he's talking about, we have an, you know, they have an advantage that we have not recognized. And it's so, and it's also covered up by the fact that, you know, we're so proud of our kind of ability to shape minds and shape discussions around the world and stuff that when the shock happens, you know, um, when these, these things are actually unleashed because Russia has been put in a corner again, because of, of their, of our success with, um, you know, with PR, with social media, with self-perception, with all of these things, uh, we're then in a panic situation. You know what I mean? Like the last thing you want in this situation is, you know, at least in the Cuban Missile Crisis, you know, the, all the tech was kind of shit. And there wasn't, you know, it wasn't a five minutes to Moscow kind of situation, right? And so I really, oh, I'm going on about about this stuff and I apologize. But what I'm trying to get at is there, there's a really good story there. And the story that suggested to me, um, listening to the Duran uh, the other day, was really there's something else going on there because caliber missiles are not hypersonic, right? So how is it that those missiles were able 30, I've seen everything from eight to 30 of them, were able to basically be undetected, get into Polish territory and destroy that place, right? Um, You know what I mean? Like there's a real military... Yeah, and and, you know, actually, you know, actually, you know, now that you meant... Now that you mention it, uh, prior to that strike on the 13th, um, when you listen to the daily Pentagon briefings, and I haven't listened to all of them, but the, the ones that I have listened to, Kirby, this uh, spokesperson, was uh, dis- very dismissive, actually, of the Russian uh, capacity to engage in any kind of serious uh, military operations in the west of Ukraine. Um, and his tone change markedly uh, after that strike. So I don't know if that's, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but uh, that was sort of what I gathered and seems sort of consistent with what you're suggesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I can imagine that. Uh, the, uh, you know, it's, it's really funny, and I appreciate the fact that you're in Poland, I appreciate the fact that you're trying to kind of suss it out a little bit, because a lot of this stuff, you can only get a feel for it. So it's this weird kind of soup of some kind of technical stuff that you might read and some on the ground reporting and some, you know, you know what I mean? Like, I think, the, I think, yeah, it's, yeah, I think yeah. it's a mess so, that we're all trying to deal with. And I think I appreciate the fact that you're actually went there and kind of said, I kind of feel like I need to be here to figure out yeah. what the hell is going on. Right. Yeah, but, exactly. Um, and, and I'm not, and I actually really think, you know, one of the joys of not having to be a journalist is you can kind of, feel your way through this stuff and and you, you know 
so and, and that's also one of the great things about Colin is you, you can kind of say what your gut feeling is because you're not being published, right? You know what I mean? Yeah. I have so, to uh I have to uh wash my words a little more carefully because I know there's a lot of people waiting to uh pounce on me for the slightest uh mishap. It's it's really easy to look I I think uh I think you're doing a good job if you are if you are pissing people off, like literally, it's the well, I don't do it. I don't, don't do. It. I appreciate that, but I don't do it for its own sake. I hope there's uh, like reasoned arguments uh, behind it, and maybe some yeah. convic- conviction. And I, 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 yeah, I often get accused of being a contrarian. Uh, but you know, if I was just a pure contrarian, then it would just be trolling, which uh, you know I'm not particularly interested in. Yeah, um, no, anyway, all right, uh, Tim. Thanks. Going to go. Yeah. Uh, just because I've been going on for this is I think my longest call on yet, so I'm going to try to wrap it up with uh, Eric next. Uh, thank you, Tim, and uh, hello again, Eric. And you are you win the uh, honor of being the last caller in this uh, marathon session. If you're still there, and if you're not, that's okay too, because. You and I have spoken quite a bit, and I'm sure we'll do so again in the future. All right. Um, thanks, everybody. I wanted to just leave you with uh, something that my uh, grandpa told me today. He actually turned 101 years old today. And uh, if you follow me on Twitter, uh, you know that I occasionally uh, tw- uh, tweet uh, quips from him or little uh, quotes. And um, something that uh, Tim was saying uh, made me think of something he said today, which I uh, jotted down. Um, you know, because he uh, he talks to me uh, about World War II a lot. Actually, uh, you know, when I was in eighth grade, I did a, uh, a research project, and um, I uh, you know, for school, and I did an interview with him about World War II, and it's the, it was the first time he had ever really talked about it with anyone. Um. And, uh, you know, at that point he was in his, uh, you know, mid eighties and, uh, you know, even my mom and my, uh, aunt would tell me that, you know, he just never spoke about it really at all. And so it took that long for him to really, uh, discuss his experiences and, you know, over the years, you know, he's revealed, uh, more and more. And, uh, so, you know, when there's a, a, a war on, he has a lot to, uh, Say he, he's thankfully still uh, very lucid. A um, little bit of a hearing uh, problem, uh, understandably. But uh, when I, uh, I talked to him on the phone, he has a special uh, sound app, amplification phone that he uses. So actually, it's pretty easy to. It's easier to talk to him on the phone than in person. <laughs> uh, so, uh, but anyway, he was uh, you know ranting to me uh, about how ridiculous it is that the U.S. might get involved in this war. And he and I tend to just kind of instinctively agree. Um, and uh, I just wanted to give you a quote because it was about, you know, Tim was referencing something totally different about like these uh, military analysts. But uh, my, my grandpa was reacting to these, uh, you know, former generals and stuff that are on TV constantly giving their expert commentary. And he said... Um, Quote, uh, and I'm, I, I'm actually now that I think about it, I'm going to tweet this after this call's over because it's, uh, it's a good quote. He said, quote, uh, you see all the big shots from the service giving talks on TV, admirals, colonels. I mean, they're making a fortune and they don't know what the hell they're talking about. <laughs> anyway, um, I got to chuckle at that. 
uh, and you know he's right. I mean, the uh, these generals that are on TV all the time, Petraeus, uh, Jack Keane on Fox, uh, Ralph Peters, and all these guys. I mean, what wars have they won? I mean, it's ridiculous. Uh, they're you know they're citing their amazing experience in Iraq, Afghanistan. You know, in the case of Wesley Clark, who's the former NATO commander who ran for president in 2004, you know, he's, he's back in action talking about how great of a success uh, U.S. military intervention was in uh, Yugoslavia. Um, and, you know, none of these interventions, uh, as far as I uh, can tell, and as far as I've uh, reported on, uh, have been, or anything to brag about. And yet, you know, they're conferred, these guys are conferred with such expertise that they really have a kind of a preposterously outsized role in shaping public perceptions of what's going on in Ukraine uh, at the moment. Um, and the, and a lot of these generals are just actually, you know, maniacs. I mean, Philip Breedlove, who was the top commander of NATO, uh, you know, the U.S., if you're not aware, you know, the U.S., uh, Commander in the U.S. basically commands the military artillery operations of, of NATO, and so it's a U.S. general or a admiral or some other high-ranking, you know, you know, military official uh, running the day-to-day operations militarily of NATO. And uh, Philip Breedlove, he was uh, in charge from uh, I think it was 2012 to 2016, something like that. So he was there in 2014 during the. The coup, uh, the putsch, or you know, or the you know, revolution, however you want to call it, and um, it turns out that he's just a crazed individual because he was one of the first uh, major officials out of the gate demanding a no-fly zone, and he actually admitted uh, that he knew it would mean war with Russia, but he wanted that. I mean, that was why he was calling for the no-fly zone. So, uh, this is the guy who's running NATO uh, for in a, in a critical period in the very recent past. So, I mean, what does that tell you about the uh, acumen of some of these uh, figures who are now being called upon to provide their expert advice? So anyway, um, that's what my uh, grandpa had to say. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm in, I'm in firm agreement with him. Um, so I'll leave it there for now. Uh, this has been a marathon uh, call-in session. Uh, and uh, thank you, everybody, for... Uh, Tuning in, uh, take a look at my uh, Substack. I, I did uh, a little item last night on that uh, American foreign fighter that I encountered. As far as I know, it's the first time that it's been reported anywhere that there was an American present at that uh, facility in uh, Western Ukraine. Seems notable, but you know there are a lot of people in the media who you know, don't think I'm quote unquote serious enough to uh, amplify. So I don't know if that reporting is going to get much attraction. Nonetheless, you know, if you follow me uh, or subscribe to me or whatever, uh, you know about it. So that's something. All right. uh, Take care, everybody, and be well.